everybody, it's Blake. And this is Steve. And you're listening to Action, the movie podcast. everybody welcome to episode 29 of action the movie podcast again for all of you listeners this is a podcast where each episode blake and i will take turns picking a movie a movie that we have not discussed in any way until this podcast so you guys are hearing our very first conversation about this movie uh no texting no nothing just uh Taking the week, two weeks or whatever it is to watch this movie. And then now you guys are hearing us talk about it for the first time. So for episode 29, it was my pick. And I picked Operation Mincemeat as previously announced on the previous podcast. It's a 2021 war drama. And it stars Colin Firth, Matthew McFadden, and Kelly McDonald, amongst others. And uh, what initially drew me to this movie was I was actually talking with a coworker one day and he just, I can't remember how it happened, but he brought up this uh, Operation Mincemeat, the story of it. And he was just telling me about, uh, we were talking about war. I can't remember what we're now. How, again, I can't remember how it came up, but uh, he, uh, he told me about this story and, uh, and I said something like, or he, he actually said that would make a, that, I think that would make a good movie. I said, I bet it's already a movie sometime. And pretty much everything's been made into a movie. And I immediately Googled it, and yep, there it was. Not only uh, this movie, but also there's a 1956 movie based on a, a different novel by one of the main characters in this, and obviously a real character in real life, because this is a true story. Uh, but a 1956 movie called The Man Who Never Was. So this uh, story has been made into a movie twice. So... I thought to myself, I'd, I'd like to watch this movie and see more about this uh, operation and what came about and what better way to do it than to make it a podcast pick. So what about you, Blake? What drew you to this movie? Um, Because you told me to. All right. So before we proceed, a little spoiler warning. We're going to be diving in depth in this movie, discussing everything, the ins and outs, even this Though this one's a true story, um, there might be some stuff in it that that you don't want to know yet. So this is your fair warning, and uh, go ahead and put it on pause. Come back, listen to us, do whatever you need to do, and uh, we'll be here waiting for you. So again, this is your fair warning. Little synopsis of Operation Mincemeat: uh, set in 1943, Winston Churchill had promised uh, the United States that the Allies would invade Sicily by July. And uh, there's a little problem there because they're worried that the German force will be sitting there waiting and it'd just be an absolute slaughter. So they need to deceive the German uh, or the Nazi uh, army, really, into Nazi Germany into thinking that they're going to invade Greece instead of Sicily. So they're trying to get Nazi Germany to move all their troops to Greece instead of uh, Sicily so they can invade Sicily, take that, and then uh, uh, proceed with their plan of winning the war. So again, this is a, they need to come up with a plan to to get, to convince them 
that they need to to move their troops that that were that the allies are really going to invade Greece instead of Sicily. So that's the main um, synopsis of the movie. And uh, again, the Operation Mincemeat is the name of the plan that they come up with, which is basically using a corpse to carry uh, falsified documents. And they obviously, we'll go into it in detail in this movie, but they do lots and lots of things to to give this uh, corpse an identity, a backstory. And so basically they want this corpse to wash ashore with these documents. The Nazis find these documents and they, again, read this and are convinced that that uh, we're going to be met, the allies are going to be invading Greece instead of Sicily. So little bit of a synopsis there. What do you think, Blake? Anything uh, you want to add or? Uh, no, I think that about kind of covers it for, you know, right. for now we dig into details as we get in. Yeah. So again, just basically uh name of the plan, Operation Mincemeat and Deceive the Nazi Germany. Let's uh, get into the filmmakers. You want to go ahead and start off with the director? Uh, yes, it is directed by John Madden. Uh, I honestly didn't know a, a lot of his stuff. I'll, I'll be frank. But some of his stuff that stood out to me was he is responsible for directing the radio drama versions of uh, Star Wars 1, 2, with the original, the episodes New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. And he did the radio dramas for those, like, literally almost after the movies came out. Yeah, 81, 83, and then, like, 96. So, well, I don't think Return of the Jedi didn't come out in anywhere close to 96, but still. I thought that was actually a pretty cool little tidbit. Yeah, I had no idea those things even existed, so that was pretty cool to read that he had done all those. And like you said, it's like, he carried over all the way to 1996 with doing that, even after he'd kind of become a, a director, um, directing some other stuff like actual movies and TV shows. It was kind of cool to see that he went back and directed that. Yeah, I mean, it's Star Wars. I mean, it's only gotten bigger over time, so there's no reason he wouldn't have gone back to it. Mm-hmm. He's also responsible for uh, Shakespeare in Love, which came out in 98. As well as uh, there's a Jim Henson television show called the The Storytellers, and he had one episode of it that covered a huge chunk of a uh, Greek myth. And I thought that was pretty interesting. He's yeah, also he directed for... uh, two Sherlock Holmes movies, one in '91 and one in '86. Uh, hmm. Did you get anything else? Because I couldn't find a whole lot on him that I knew about, honestly. Did you have anything you want to add to him? Well, I mean, he's he's a pretty prolific director. Uh, he's a uh, he got nominated for Shakespeare in Love, and obviously that won Best Picture that year, and it was a huge upset because Saving Private Ryan was basically the favorite to win that year, and Shakespeare in Love won. So Ew. I'll always remember that. Go ahead. That's gross. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't even know what Shakespeare in Love is. I'm I'm assuming that it's some stupid story about Shakespeare. It's a love. really good movie. It really is. Uh, all kinds of people are in it. Ben Affleck, uh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, who won Best Actress for it. Uh, Jeffrey Rush, Colin Firth is in this. But is compared in to love. Saving Private Ryan, I mean, I get Saving Private Ryan. They're like, it's just another war movie. Oh, I'm not but, saying it should have won, but uh, it, I mean, again, it was it was a shock. I mean, everybody was shocked. But he's directed a lot of stuff like that. Like, 
um, Mrs. Brown with Judy Dench and Captain Curly's Mandolin with uh, Nicolas Cage is in this like a romantic movie. So a lot of his movies are fairly the same, uh, kind of in that same, you know, kind of lower tone, I guess you could say. The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. I always I want to watch that. And then they made a sequel to it, too. I heard good things about that. It sounds pretty interesting. But it always surprises me every time I think about him directing this other movie. It's called Kill Shot. A super violent movie. Uh, Mickey Rourke, um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, based on an Elroy, Lin- or, uh, Elroy Elmore Leonard novel. And again, I always think of Elmore Leonard being like the main influence for Quentin Tarantino. Jackie Brown was based on the Elmore Leonard novel called Rum Punch. But uh, I always think it's weird that John Madden directed Kill Shot. It's just like so unlike anything else he's he's done. Maybe he's uh, just trying to take a step out of his own shadow or something. Yeah. And and I I, I suggest you guys watch that movie. I'd, I'd recommend it. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty good movie. Violent, like I said. And Mickey Rourke does a great job. But yeah, pretty prolific director, really. And then uh, this is his newest movie. Is he, I couldn't remember. I don't think he has anything upcoming right now. I think that's everything he has to date at the moment, right? I mean, I'm sure he's working on something. He's always working, but yeah, well, man. I mean, there was a five year gap between Operation Mincemeat and his last movie, Miss Sloan, with uh, God, what's her name? Uh, Jessica Chastain. Yeah, Jessica. He's worked with twice, it looks like. It's, unfortunately, yeah, I don't, I didn't know much of his work, and I don't really care about Shakespeare and love. It seems some sort of it just didn't. Bench press my tractor didn't float my boat. So, I mean, maybe, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's good. Uh, do you want to tackle the writer? The writer? We can do both. Just, we can do the writer of the movie and the writer of the book if you want. Just try to. I'm going to say right off the bat that the writing in this movie bothered me. So I'm mm-hmm. not a big fan of this writer. Just looking at what she's done. I mean, she looks like she cut her teeth doing 21 Jump Street, the original one. Back yeah, in like back the in 90s. The she is the creator of Masters of Sex, which was a pretty big time television show for about three or four years on Showtime. Yeah, 46 episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she also had, I think it was like a 10 episode series, The Pacific, but she only had wrote on two of those episodes. But again, I mean, from what I can see, she hasn't done much. I know that uh, John Madden directed an episode of Masters of Sex. I wonder if that had anything to do with it may Her have. I, I did say that too. That she had he had directed one episode. Mm-hmm. So um, the other thing there. for hers that I'm semi interested in is she has a TV show uh, she directed in called Mayfair Witches, which she directed three episodes, and that show stars uh, Alexandria Alexandria uh, Daddario, who mm-hmm. is I think is awesome and absolutely drop dead gorgeous. But she's really, I like her. She's really funny. And she does really good serious stuff as well. Yeah. And she's direct, she did a lot of uh, like historic stuff, it seems like, too. That's what well. it looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Adams with uh, Paul Giamatti. Yeah. I mean, I'd never heard of her before this. And we'll get into it when we talk about the movie a little bit with the script and everything. But uh, I think the the writing of this movie, in my opinion, was the the weak link of it. I think it was well directed, well acted, and everything else was pretty strong, but I had a lot of trouble with the script. And like I said, we'll get into a little bit more. Anything else you want to add on her? Not really. Like I said, she didn't have a whole, whole lot that I was aware of. That's why I asked one thing. Did you, I don't remember, Steve, did you watch this before adding it to the podcast? Or did you nope. watch the first time watching? Okay. First time I watching it. I didn't know if you watched it, then picked it for the podcast. I, I kind of like to know if, if we had seen it before. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it's been a couple of weeks now. I can't remember what you said. 
Yeah, no, I'd never seen this. Okay, I'd, for... I picked it solely so I could uh, watch it for the first time. Cool, cool. And like you said, uh, Blake, it, so the, it was written, she did the screenplay, but it's based on a novel uh, by a guy named Ben McIntyre. Uh, he's basically a historian, it looks like. He, he writes yeah. a lot of books about historical figures and um, specifically war stuff and and again, this he wrote this novel in 2010, but there was another novel written in 1953 by one of the main characters, if not the main character, uh, uh, Montague. Uh, Ewan Montague, played by Colin Firth's character, wrote the the novel that the 1956 movie was based on called The Net Man Who Never Was. So again, I mean, I'd never heard of uh, Ben McIntyre, but apparently he's a, he's a pretty big time writer he's he writes a lot of different things he's had a pretty long career so right, right now you? there's actually um both recently i think it's just maybe just a resurgence because uh, operation miss meat came out in 2021 and then he has two tv shows in 2022 one called a spy among friends which was a mini series and then an actual tv show called uh, rogue heroes and both of those tv shows are based off his works his books and on top of all that he's also a uh, a columnist for the times and has and i think still is and has been for some time yeah he's what like in his 60s he's, he's an older gentleman yeah i don't know his exact age but he's older yeah. he was born in 63 so what's he's like 60 isn't he? 70 i guess right or no 60 exactly right? i think he's 60 on the dot on yeah. he'll be 60 in, in, in december yeah a young man yeah. Yeah, it is a 60s, the new 40. Mm-hmm. Can't wait because I'm getting up there, too. <laughs> All right, let's uh, jump down to our actors. Uh, I went ahead and just did three, but if you have any more than that, I think it's we probably have the same top three. But if you, you have the same some... top three for sure. And then I have uh, one of them's an honorable mention because that character is essentially my favorite character in the movie. And then there are two other ones who I thought were definitely worth noting because I do very much enjoy them. And not just in this movie, but just in general, I wanted to talk about them. All right, go ahead. Uh, we'll start kind of at the bottom. I'll explain why this is probably one of my favorite characters when we get to his introduction in the in the movie. But the character plays uh, Captain David Ainsworth, and he's uh, acted by Nicholas Rowe. And uh, he's done a couple of small things. Comes to, he was in a uh, the importance of being Oscar I, I not Oscar Isaac but Oscar Wilde. We played Oscar Wilde. Uh, Oscar Wilde has some of my some really good quotes. Uh, one of my favorite ones of his is like, "God, what is it? Religion is like playing darts in the dark while blindfolded." or something like that mm. and trying to hit a black it, no okay darts is being blindfolded in a dark room trying to throw darts at a black cat <laughs> like he, he words it more eloquently but it's yeah, you, probably should, you probably should have looked that up before you tried to do that quote <laughs> i'm surprised you mentioned him i mean i was i was thinking of, of a couple because there are two i'm going to give kind of an honorable mention to as well but um i'm surprised you mentioned him but yeah, I like, I like Oscar. Okay, here he is. Okay. Religion is a blind man looking in a black room for a black cat that isn't there. Oh, I, mean, I remember that quote. <laughs> so, I mean, he's like real 
uh, hoity-toity, but I do like Oscar Isaac quite a bit. I, I keep saying Oscar Isaac. Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde. Not, not Oscar Isaac, the actor. Not uh, Oscar Wilde, the the you know writer. But besides that, he was in uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels as a character named Jay. He was also in 2020, which I thought was kind of funny, in 2020. Uh, in the Washington miniseries, he played George Washington, which I thought was kind of funny, a Brit playing George Washington. As well as, this is something for me and you more than anything, Drew, but uh, in Xenoblade Chronicles 2, he plays one of the party members, uh, Poppy Buster. <laughs> Poppy and Buster? Poppy, Poppy Buster. Buster. <laughs> and then, uh, this, is this kind of serendipitous? I actually bought this still book from Target really recently because it was super cheap. Uh, but it was the young Sherlock Holmes from 1985, and he portrays the young Sherlock Holmes. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Huh. I just watched that the other day. He he plays it was Sherlock on TV Holmes the other day. Yeah. Huh. I was I was watching that, and I honestly thought to myself, I wonder what ever happened to that actor. Are you? Was the same He's guy, right. baby? That's cool, man. That's funny. Um, that's kind of it for him. That poor guy never never acted again. <laughs> um i got another smaller one uh she should be a little quicker but um penelope wilton and she plays uh hester leggett she's real big in uh downton downton Alby, downton abbey abbey god <laughs> but I keep wanting to say downtown abbey i know that's not right it's downton abbey and she's yeah. in the movie and the TV show. This reoccurring a reoccurring character is a uh, Isabel Crowley. She was in the the BFG that Ronald Dahl hmm. book turned movie. I think Spielberg, Spielberg didn't direct, did he? Direct? He did, yeah, he did direct it. His she was, boy like, was the main what, actor in it. Wasn't that his first like not huge blockbuster? Yeah, it's kind of strange. That movie was okay though. It was okay. He's I remember had I really liked had the a book bombs, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was the voice of the queen in that. Uh, she's also hmm. in uh, Shaun of the Dead, which I thought was pretty cool. She plays uh, a small role in that, but it's pretty cool. And the, th- the main thing I know her from is we've brought this up before. I don't think you've ever really watched it, but she's in Doctor Who as a reoccurring character for like one or two seasons. As a first, she's reporter Harriet Jones, and then spoiler alert, like. Later on in like the next season, she is Prime Minister Harriet Jones, but uh, she plays a pretty, pretty uh, good role in that actually, overarching over a couple episodes between like two seasons, I think. But I thought she was always pretty good. Let's see here, I got one, one more before because I'm assuming you had Colin Matthew and Kelly, right? I have Colin Matthew and Kelly, correct. Okay, and I'll, so I'll take this other one, and then I'll let you have them three. I think that's fair. Three and three. Okay. Yeah. Well, I had last... two. I had two real quick, uh, like honorable mentions too. Whenever we get done. Okay, I'll, I'll try to get, go through them real quick, so we're not spending like nine hours talking. You know, reading IMDb pages. Sure. But for me, uh, he plays a pretty prominent role. He's actually their boss. Is uh, Admiral John Godfrey is played by actor Jason Isaacs. He was one of my two, so I'll just chime in whenever you're done. Okay, fantastic. So I apparently, uh, I love 
Jason Isaacs. Every every time I see him on screen, I love mm-hmm. him. Same now here. the big thing everyone's gonna know him in is he is Lucius Malfoy from the Harry Potter franchise. He is Draco's father. Now, besides that, he has a bunch of other things. Um, some kind of like random things. He plays a character, I think the character's name was JT or JD in Event Horizon, which is a phenomenal like sci-fi space movie. He was also in Dragonheart back in the day with uh, Dennis Quaid. He is in Resident Evil 1 as uh, Dr. William Birkin. And kind of one random cool thing is uh, he actually starred alongside Jackie Chan in The Tuxedo (laughs) as uh, Clark Devlin. I thought that was pretty cool when I just when I read that. And then he has a he has a great voice and he has a bunch of voice roles that have from like all over the place. But some cool ones for me was in a, a brand new video game that just came out called Marvel Midnight Suns. And he's the voice of Mephesto. I haven't got a chance to play it yet. Super excited to play it, though. Hmm. But some of his other things, he's done a lot of some DC things, mostly. But let's see three separate individual movies. Uh, Superman Red Sun, uh, he voiced Superman himself, and then in Justice League Gods and Monsters, he was the voice of Lex Luthor, and in Batman Under the Red Hood, he was the voice of uh, Raj Al Ghul, hmm. as well as let's see what's his other one in both Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra, he's the voice of Commander Zhao. And he like across like the whole both series, like 15 episodes and then some two recent live action things for myself. One I haven't got around to watching yet, but I do want to is he is in Star Trek Discovery and he is Captain Gabriel Lorne, which I'm curious about because I like him. And then a show that I surprised it surprised me how much I loved this show was a show called Sex Education on Netflix Mm. I've heard of it. It's if you haven't watched it yet, it's really good. I think like, you guys have talked about it too. Like surprise, it caught me off guard. Podcast. We probably raved about it back when we for, yeah. walk, we're waiting for that. We, we were waiting for a long time for the next season to come out. They announced it like over a year. Well, I guess things have happened. Maybe that, like over a year ago they announced the filming of it or something. Yeah, but man, that shit do us for a loop. How how like genuinely you love character, you'll love it. Like it's just so the, the, the like you said though you, you don't like the right we, we've talked about the podcast before maybe our other podcasts too yeah. but like you like writing and character and that's that that, that thing rules it both i don't i don't we don't know though we don't we don't to, to the writers stuff of that show or the yeah. creators of that show to see why it's possibly so good but like wow but one of the best shows i've seen in I mean, like a while in hmm. sex education he plays a character uh peter goff and he is, it's a small role. He plays like the, how do I explain this? The headmaster of the school that sex education takes place in. Some shenanigans happens and uh, he ends up being, he is the headmaster's brother. Hmm. And he comes in for like a couple episodes. Uh, did I, did you want to cover anything else in there? Well, I mean, the first thing I ever saw him in was, I mean, like you, I mean, everything he's in, he just commands the screen. He just he's has that presence about him, those great. those piercing blue eyes, and like you said, that voice, and he just does a damn good job. I, I just, I'm a fan of him and everything that I see him in. But the first thing that I ever saw him in, or that I really recognized or, you know, note, took notice of him in was the 1998 movie Armageddon, 
which if we ever did Armageddon on this podcast, it's five stars, by the way. It's a flawless movie. I just watched it not too long ago. It's just freaking great. I haven't watched but, it since uh, I was a kid. It definitely requires some suspension of disbelief that it's easier to train miners to be astronauts as opposed to astronauts to use a drill, but I'll leave it's it be. So, it's just so fun, and it's just so perfect, man. Everything about it. But anyways, uh, he plays the like astrophysicist or whatever that comes up with the idea pretty much to put the nuke and drill down in there and put the nuke in there. And uh, just like you had a quote earlier with somebody, he, he has this line in Armageddon that I've never forgotten since the first time I heard it. And every time I see it, I just love it. But he says, he, he talks about um, what they're going to do. And he says, uh, you take a firecracker and you put it in the palm of your hand and let it light off. It's going to burn your hand. You close your fist around that same firecracker. Your wife's going to be opening your ketchup bottles for the rest of your life. And that line is just so, it just says pretty good line. like what they're wanting to do to that asteroid. Um, drill deep down in it, put the nuke down in there like the firecracker, wrap that asteroid around it and blow it up. And then he also has another line there uh, that they're saying like the some guy on the president's staff or whatever saying that idea is not going to work. This idea is going to work. And he says, uh, uh, Jason Isaac's character says something like, I don't think you guys want to take advice from. A, I went to school with that guy. I don't think you want to take advice from a guy that got C minus in astrophysics, but he's just like this genius, real smart guy. And again, like <laughs> everything he plays, he just commands the screen. Well, but I'd never forgotten him since that movie. And because okay. uh, it was funny, is that the more I searched the down like his IMDb rabbit hole, I was like, I loved this dude way before I ever saw Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Like this yep. dude was part of my my childhood and yep. life. Yep, he's great. But yeah, Jason, uh, so yeah. is great. <clears throat> That's the only thing I really wanted to add on him. But the other guy I wanted to give honor honorable mention to real fast, and I don't really know much about this guy, but I just I wouldn't point out. I thought it was interesting. The guy that plays a uh, Sergeant Roger Dearborn, the American that's uh they use uh they end up taking pictures of him for the corpse mm-hmm. to to look like a the real life person. His his the actor's name's Lauren McFadden, and again the the second lead in this movie, Matthew McFadden, and their names are spelled the same. They're both like European British actors or whatever, and no relation whatsoever. No relation was whatsoever. Unique. I looked into it too. I thought it would be, was kind of cool, but there's no relation at all. Yep. But just wanted to point that out. Anybody that watches this movie might think the same thing, but no relation. Just thought that was really interesting. All right, let's get to the three uh, leads here. I spoke a bunch, so you can go ahead and tackle all of them. All right, I'll start um, Sorry, bottom, bottom going I guess up, I guess. Uh, we'll save the two actors and then uh, the lead actress, Kelly McDonald, who plays Jean Leslie. Uh, the first thing I ever saw her in and the first thing she was ever in was uh, Train Spotting. Uh, had a huge crush on her. I thought she was super cute. I mean, I was just out of high school at that time. And <laughs> Train Spotting was just this crazy movie that everybody was talking about. Danny Boyle's like first, well, I mean, he did... Uh, the uh, shallow grave with Hugh McGregor, I think, before that, but train spotting just kind of shot Danny Boyle and the superstardom. And uh, again, all the actors in it as well. Uh, pretty much every single one of them are working today. I mean, like big time actors, Hugh McGregor, uh, Kelly McDonald, obviously, she's had a huge career. Well, uh, the voice of Merida and Brave. Uh, she was on yeah. an awesome TV show called Boardwalk Empire. There's a No Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers movie she was in. 
again, I mean, just a great career for Kelly McDonald as well as all the other actors that were in Train Spotting. But have you guys seen No Country for Old Men? I it's one of those things that it's, I I need to, but I've just never gotten around to watching it. Everyone talks about how great it is, but I've just never actually gotten around to watching. I have nothing against it. I want to. I just I keep forgetting about it. Yeah, I read the book and uh, it's a Cormac McCarthy book, and Coen Brothers made it into a movie. It's just it's so great. Uh, but Kelly McDonald, she plays uh, Josh Brolin's wife in it. They're uh, these uh, people that like poor, dirt poor, living like out way out in uh, Texas um, or is it New Mexico? I can't remember. But anyway, it's like out in that area. Um, but she's just she's American. You would never realize that she's British in it, you know, like like a lot of these British actors. Yeah. But uh, she just does such a good job playing uh, his wife in it. And then uh, there's this other movie called Girl in the Cafe. I bet neither of you guys have ever even heard of it, but it was an HBO original movie. Really good little kind of romantic comedy with uh, Bill Nye who uh, is in a lot of the, he was in, you were talking about Shaun of the Dead earlier. He plays mm-hmm. the, uh, he's, he has a big part in that. And, but again, Bill Nye, he's everywhere. Um, but uh, uh, Kelly was in a Black Mirror episode. We, we talked about Black Mirror off, off podcast. And then she was in this other movie. I think it's like her newest movie. It's called I Came By. Uh, I always tell you guys, I kind of watch movies while I'm like driving. <laughs> I'll have it on Which, worst time that's, ever. That's terrible and very worse than texting and driving. <laughs> it's but, a really good movie. You wake up dead. <laughs> but it's uh, I want that's one of the movies I watched while I was driving. It kept me awake. But uh, pretty cool. Um, grim. It's a super grim movie, especially with her character. Some stuff just happens in the movie with uh, she's uh, the vo- the mother of this uh this boy that gets abducted and she's trying to find him throughout the movie. And again, an underrated movie you guys might not even heard about, but it's definitely one worth checking out. I came by, but uh, yeah, I mean, again, great career for her starting in 1996, working steadily until now and just, and one, you know, big, big thing after another. And it's, you know, again, she's, she voiced Meredith. So that's pretty cool. She's like, she's I wonder that she's a Disney princess. Yeah, exactly. She's Merida. Yep you know the scottish princess like she's the voice of mirror which is awesome yep so, disney princess is like they're taken care of for life right and you know anytime something else comes around they voice it and oh yeah uh, i think she did something in like what a uh, wreck it ralph she voiced merida and yeah she she reprised the role because uh speaking of disney princesses the the dude oh my god i can't remember his name off the top of my head but because on a podcast I listened to a while ago, and he he's the voice of Aladdin, like he, that's huge. He is the voice of Aladdin, and he was like, "Yo, yeah, Disney treated me great, great, great." But he's like, um, they like, compared to how they treat and uh, the voice actors for Jasmine. He's like, "They, I'm dog shit." <laughs> he's like, "She yeah, princesses get better." Treatment. He's like, "The prince, the, the if you're a Disney princess." Disney will take care of you forever. Yeah. Like you get taken care of, period. Like you literally become a princess. And he was like, he's like, it's crazy. He's like, he's like, I'm well off. She's a Disney princess. There's a vastly different level between me and her. He's like, and I'm the main character. <laughs> but she's a Disney princess. And he, he, he wasn't like mad or anything about it, but he's like, he just thought it was funny that. Yeah, Disney princesses are on a whole other level. Yep. 
Um, I didn't hear you mention it. Maybe what you did. But one of the things uh, she was in is she's in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I love that movie. I've never seen it. What? But I heard I know what it is. <sighs> that makes me sad. <laughs> it's, a, it's a quirky movie. It's weird. But it's a fun movie. But we can move on to the next one, which you can keep taking. What's that? Go ahead. I'm you, assuming you, you, you take can the next keep one? going. I'm assuming you take on Matthew. Okay. So he is an actor. I'm just going to say three things. Succession, succession, succession. <laughs> Maybe the best acted television show of all time. It's got Brian um, Cox in it. Yeah, we've talked about it before. It's just amazing. And he's one of the main characters on it. He plays... Uh, Brian Cox's character's daughter's husband. And he <laughs> might be one of the slimiest, or, or I could just say son-in-law. <laughs> but yeah, that helps. Uh, you know, he's easy uh, son-in-law. Yeah. He uh because in the in the show, I guess it when because you think about her, you know what I'm saying? And that's kind of what I, I said it right the first time is like sounds confusing, but he's it's just more. like this guy, you know what I'm saying? He's like he's he's married into the family, so um, he's he's his daughter's husband, you know, but uh, he's just might be one of the slimiest characters ever. He's totally out for himself and uh, again, just superb acting. So every time I see him, no matter what his character's like in this movie or any other movie, he's always going to be Tom Wobbs, Wombsgans to me, the, his character in succession. But uh, he he's been in tons of stuff, uh, worked with Kara Knightley twice, uh, Anna Karina. And uh, also when, um, what was the other thing? Uh, Pride and Prejudice, which was one of the kind of the first things he was in, his first big roles. He's in that remake of Three Musketeers. He's in two like remake movies. He plays the Sheriff of Nottingham and one of the thousand mm-hmm. adaptations of Robin Hood, the one with Russell Crowe. And then he's also in Three Musketeers. The, so in like back-to-back years, 2010 and 2011, he was in these like movies that have been made a thousand times. But that Three Musketeers, I watched that not too long ago, and it's pretty entertaining. It's directed by the guy that did the Resident Evil movies. Mia Jovovich is in it. Uh, really good cast in it. That Logan Lerman, you were talking about Alexandra yeah. Daddario, but I always uh, think of her within the Percy Jackson movies with Logan Lerman. Those are coming um, back as a Disney Plus television show. Yeah. The Percy Jackson, so I'm curious about that too. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, no, but he's had a, a really cool little career. Um, And again, just topped off with Succession and now... His role in this movie, I guess, moving uh, succession just ended. So I'm, I'm wondering what kind of roles he's going to get going forward. Uh, but one cool thing I wanted to mention, you guys remember the Grindhouse movie that Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez yeah, did? Yeah, uh, Death Proof and um, um, Planet Terror. Planet Terror. Yeah, Death Proof was Tarantino's Planet Terror. Uh, Planet Terror was uh, Robert Rodriguez. Rodriguez. But they throughout the thing, they had the... Uh, the previews the, the, and yeah uh, that's where like he, thanks killing and stuff came from and machete uh-huh. but he he just has like a small little role like hatchet victim and and i i watched it, i rewatched it too um on youtube i pulled it up just the same and it's like so quick but he'd done things you know um movies and stuff he wasn't like a complete nobody but he did that little bit so i wonder how he got that like if he's friends with them or why he did that favor for them but uh he did a segment where he like on it's the one called don't it's like don't go in the house don't go down here do you remember that one on there no honestly the um, only one i really i remember machete and thanks killing 
Right. Um, but I'm anyway, I thought that was pretty cool that he was on the little grindhouse segment. It was pretty awesome. Anything you want to add on him? The mm, two things. Uh, he's in the original uh, Death at a Funeral. If yeah, you've seen, have you, you've seen that, right? I've never right? seen it, but I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Death at a Funeral is it's good. And uh, I, I never saw the American remake of it, but the, the British one is, is good. As well as he's also in this thing called Pillars of Eternity. It was a miniseries starring Ian McShane and Hallie Atwell and uh, what's his name? He plays Newt's commander, uh, Eddie Redmayne. Mm. And it's based off of a book. Uh, and I, we, I'm we, i curious. If, I haven't got around to watching it yet, but I'm curious enough about it to give it a go. But the only other thing is you mentioned him because he is in Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley, like you said earlier. Uh, he is in, that is the 2005 movie version where he plays Mr. Darcy kind of funny little tidbit is that Colin Firth also plays Mr. In Darcy in the miniseries version in like 1998. I think it was. I had that written down as well. And speaking of that also, uh, where to go? I hit it right here in the 2005 in the, in the movie version that he stars in, Penelope Wilton, the lady who plays Hester, uh, she plays Mrs. Gardner in the Pride and Prejudice movie with him. Hmm. I thought that yeah. was kind of funny and definitely worth a, a note. Yeah, that is crazy. Oh, oh, God, I should have mentioned this back when you were talking about Kelly McDonald. Uh, but she has it's a show she was in. It's called Truth Seekers, where she co-stars alongside uh, Nick Frost. Have you seen that show? No, I've never seen Truth Seekers. Uh-uh. It's it's oddly enough, I think it, who's his dad? Is it Bill Nye? No, it's no Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell plays Nick Frost's uh, dad in that, and it's a really funny show. Hmm. Uh, Truth Seekers, but sorry, I mean I didn't mean to go backwards like that. But uh, do you have anything else to add to Matthew? Not on him. I was going to actually say that other thing about. Colin Firth and Pride and Prejudice whenever I got to Colin Firth here. Oh, my bad. So I'm glad you no 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 I'm just I'm just saying that was the only thing that I that I had that even related to him. Uh you can uh, take over Colin Firth too and I'll add in randomly throughout. So Colin Firth uh, again his he just had a very and what's cool about Colin Firth is he's just done all kinds of different movies. He's uh the first thing I ever saw him in there was this movie it was when I was a senior in high school it was called Circle of Friends. Many, many drivers and I shouldn't say senior high school. It was again, again, like back whenever I was younger. Um, many drivers in it. That Chris O'Donnell, who you guys know from, uh, he did like uh, the Sin of a Woman without Pacino, and he was he was Robin in the Joe Schumacher Batman and Robin movie. Uh, oh yeah, Chris McDowell or Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell. Yeah. There you go. So, but Colin Firth was like he it's so weird thinking about it because he's such a big actor now. And he was like, not even the main lead in that movie. It was Chris O'Donnell. Uh, but that was like the first thing I remember seeing a uh, Colin Firth in. Then he just done so many things. Uh, English patient. We talked about Shakespeare in love earlier. He's in all the Bridget Jones diary movies. Love. Actually. We talked about Bill Nye earlier. That's a uh, Bill Nye. He's also in that uh, love. Actually, maybe one of the best romantic comedies of all time. Then he was in the, you talked about a British remake earlier or the death of the funeral, but then there's another one called fever pitch mm-hmm. uh, that was remade with a uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore, the yeah, Fairley yeah. brothers. 
but there was a British version of that, uh, and he's the basically plays the Jimmy Fallon character in that. Kingsman. Uh, I'll, I'll say guess... now, I'm actually a latecomer to Colin for like I I think I've been aware of him. I'm not going. I've I've been aware of him. I'm pretty sure because like the Bridget Joneses, but I never saw any of those. I was like, but so the first thing I've actually seen Colin Firth in was Kingsman. And I, I was immediately like, oh, this dude's awesome. He he, played, he was great in Kingsman 1 and 2. And it, that was like so unlike anything else he'd done. That's kind of why I said at the beginning, it's the movies he's done. It's just so neat, like just the different ones. Then obviously, I mean, the one that anybody has to mention with him is King's Speech. He won Best Actor for that. And again, he played a real life character. And just if you guys haven't seen that, it's one of the best performances in so long. And well, very well written. Jeffrey Rush, him, just such a great rapport between those two actors. But again, he he that's that's an Oscar that went to the right person. We kind of joked about Shakespeare in Love and Saving Private Ryan earlier, but King's Speech. I mean, no other actor deserved that that award more than him that year for sure. See, um, two other well, one other thing he was in that we've mentioned before that I'll have to I'll have to find a way of you know to watch it somehow. But he uh, he's in he co-stars alongside uh, Gary Oldman in uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which I still haven't got around to watching. But you said was really good. What I was trying to think, what move? What did we mention that for? Because we mentioned it on one of the podcasts, like an actor or a writer. I can't even remember what we mentioned that for. <laughs> We've only got. But anyways, I didn't want to. I, if you knew offhand, but I didn't mm. dig too deep into early, but I saw that listed. For him and i was thinking of stuff man why did we mention tinker tether so just by that one time i bet it was paddington too someone being british in that movie i bet yeah maybe hugh uh hugh grant or something peter probably i don't know i can't remember we'll go I ahead because i know we've, we've talked about it before but i can't i'm, I'm gonna go through all my notes <laughs> it is a good movie though it's a slow burn but it's, it's smart and fun i mean i wouldn't say fun but it's smart and just you're you're in you're you're invested in it. I think the last thing I'll add for Colin Firth is he, it's funny. Uh, he plays two different roles in two different versions of the movie secret garden. Uh, in 1987, he played uh, the, there's a little boy in like a wheelchair and he plays the boy grown up, like near the end of the movie, he plays the grown up version of the boy. And he's like, you know, functioning and then in 2020 he played that little boy's dad in the 2020 version of secret garden and i thought that was kind of cool hmm. and we've come back that and do weird. that you ever seen the secret garden before steve no it's no. i don't it's know it's like part of my childhood movie, and right? i'm not entirely sure why because it's not it's an okay movie but it's not like I watched that movie a bunch as a kid, and I rewatched it kind of recently, and I don't understand why I watched it so many times. Because it's not mm. bad, but it's it's weird that I would have watched that movie as much as I did as a kid. But um, if you don't have anything else to add, we can kind of jump into the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you can see, good solid cast. Definitely, uh, I would say. I mean, those are probably Colin Firth and Matthew McFadden of the two leads and then kelly mcdonald like you said but but i mean again i, I always feel bad whenever we do this because there's so many good actors in this movie and we there just are and that's why I, I hate i i want to limit it to you know 
two or three, but you're like, this is a good actor. This guy's this definitely mm-hmm. worth being mentioned. Like I said, I mentioned three others besides the main three, and there's a, a bunch of people that have other good performances, though sometimes are minor roles, like only have like two or three scenes, but they're throughout the movie, so they feel like they're in the movie for a longer time. Right. Like my character here that I talked about, and we'll get talk about it more, but the Ainsworth, like he has like four scenes in the movie probably, but he has mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts in the movie that, you know, made me laugh and like his character a whole bunch. Yeah. But again, like he's like maybe the movie's a little over two hours and he might have 15 minutes of screen time, maybe 20. It's like still... right, right in the like third quarter of it, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump into it. You know, see, we can kind of go kind of quick over some of this stuff because it's not super important. Yeah. Right. Okay. Go. I mean, go ahead. You want to? You want to go ahead and start it out? Well, the the main thing is like the where the movie starts is uh Hewan, our main character played by Colin Firth, Hewan Montague, not to be confused with Montague and Capulet from Romeo and Juliet, but he is a Montague. He is uh they're hosting a retirement party for him because he sells naval supplies. But we are all this is taking place in uh 1943 right like right at the heat mm-hmm. of of world war ii like in the midst of it they're getting firebombed and stuff like that matter of fact at one point it's like about a quarter of the way through the movie but one of the characters uh once they form talks about that he he's late coming into the office because they had one of the streets was blocked off because a little girl found an unexploded uh ordinance in her backyard was playing with it and when cops came upon her and they had to cl- close down but it didn't blow up and they were just so casual about the the war and violence that had been going on around them it's just kind of crazy to think about mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's terrifying but yeah sorry because this opening thing is just really quickly here's a reason for all these characters to be introduced at Hewan's retirement party we get introduced to um Mrs. Leggett uh, Hester, who is, you know, immediately, you know, she's a friend of the family. She's been his assistant for years. And then, you know, some emotional ties in there, like his family is about to move to New uh, America to try to avoid the war. For safety, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think it splashed intermittently during this scene, but Charles goes to a movie. And behind him is the pretty girl from work, which is played by uh, Charles, which is played by Matthew McFadden. And then he's at the movie. He meets the pretty girl who is played by, oh, what's her name? Jean Leslie, who's played by Kelly McDonald. And each, and you, these are very quickly and immediately get you to understand the characters. Like Hewan is cold, but very honorable and loving to his family. You have Charles, who's a bit of a goofball and a know-it-all, but he's smart. And then you, you know, it becomes just a real quick shotgun blast of know these characters because you're about to be deal with them for the next two hours. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then, and this uh, is like one of the like first things I had like kind of bothered me with the screenplay. It's just like so fast with him and his wife. Uh, we see that Charles like there's friction in their marriage, and even though she's going away, you know, he's sad. They're all sad, but his wife's like upset and just, I don't know. It's just, I don't know if it was bad acting on her part or 
the actress's part. I don't know. I just hated the way that that whole part was. It just didn't feel very well explained. And um, but there's a conversation between Colin Firth and Miss um, Leggett, you know, about that situation a little bit. And um, but it's just I don't know. It just seems so weird and rushed. There's just so many things that are like guess kind of important in this movie that seem rushed and there are things that aren't so important that's like they drag they out. take too much time on yeah but that's one of the first things i was like well i don't i, I missed a beat uh this is a frame story as well we do take place like right at the very end of the movie where like is the plan going is a you button know, what do you call it a, a cliffhanger well, they, to, to they do a six out. months earlier and like then, yeah. title card right before that I, retirement I did party. like those as they appear throughout the movie. They're the the typewriter click 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 mm-hmm. click for the title cards. I did yeah. like every time they popped up. I I thought those were pretty cool. And then, like you said, it jumps six months earlier, and then we get the retirement party and the introduction of all the, all of our characters. Yeah, and then, like I said, they they rushed it, and then it's like boom 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 boom. Basically, they rushed it just so they can tell you that these normal looking people are actually all spy masters. To thunk, mm-hmm. and then it just ricochets very quickly into the uh, probably the big first moment is we have a sit down with uh Churchill and we're introduced to Jason Isaac's character, John Godfrey. And this is where, but there's another side character, um, I should have looked him up, but this it's actually pretty cool because like this whole movie is based on real a real thing that actually happened and i'll explain that here in just a moment but during this conversation between uh godfrey and churchill uh something is brought up called the trout memo and everything's all worded in you know vague terms so it doesn't sound important but the trout memo is basically a guide to spycraft it has all their techniques the different ruses names and operations and everything what it's called a definitive blueprint for spies basically is how it's described Exactly. And the particular uh, uh, operation that the whole thing is based off of, this operation meant to me, is like Operation Number 48. Idea 28. Idea 20, 28, my bad. Uh-huh. Idea 28 is actually created, and it this is a, a real thing, was created and the idea was penned by Ian Fleming, later become Sir who was in fact a naval communications officer and is the creator of James Bond. And he based some of the characters from Bond off of these characters and mm-hmm. like uh, Godfrey, he's, he's basically Godfrey's assistant and yeah. he based the character M off of Godfrey, even calls Godfrey M in the movie. What does he say? And- in Called, reference to his, he calls his mother M because she's right. the scariest monster he's ever met. Right. He's been afraid to call her a monster to her face, so he just calls her M. It's and again, we talked about how we didn't name talk about some of the actors, but the guy that plays Fleming, he he steals every scene he's in. He does a good. He job. does a very good job. Yeah, he did. Yeah, Blueprint Spycraft. Yeah, and then like this kind of the, the go ahead between Churchill and Godfrey. Churchill's like, go ahead. We're where we have to hit Sicily. Like this is kind of like where the whole building of the movie is like we have to hit Sicily, but Germany knows that we're going to hit Sicily because of its strategic importance. We have to convince them that we're going somewhere else, or uh, his exact quote is, or history herself 
will avert her eyes from the slaughter. Mm-hmm. It's a great line. And the dude who, who played Churchill delivered it excellently. And again, another guy that's in like, what, three scenes in the movie, but steals every one of them. Yes, he does. And then we get like a slight bit more character building with a, particularly Charles, that he is kind of, I don't say a beaten man, but he is definitely a depressed man who he lives with his mother and she is mourning the loss of her favorite son, his older brother. Hero. Yeah, the, the war hero. And uh, she just keeps like, well, do something, pull some strings. And she just, every day he comes home, she doesn't, she doesn't ask him about how his day was. She's just like, is your brother coming home yet? Is his body coming? And you can just see that he's just beaten. He's just And he, he refers to himself as a penguin, basically a naval flight officer that can't fly. He said he has bad eyes and big feet. And so his mom's probably like somewhat disappointed. Like she wants oh, yeah. two heroes like her other son that, that died at war. But uh, he's just this guy that pushes papers to her, basically, probably. But and and one one cool thing is uh, in that narration at the very beginning of the movie that Ian Fleming would find out later that Ian Fleming does. He says something like he talks about how war is like dead bodies and battles and this and that. But then there's a whole other war that goes on behind the scenes. So there's so there's like guys like uh, um, and you we keep saying Charles, but his last name is Chumley, but it's. It's spelled. It's pronounced Chumley, but it's spelled. And there's a cool line where he spells his name out for everybody. He's like C H O L M O N D E L E Y. It's pretty funny. But, um, but there's two different wars, and that that's like the perfect example is is him and his brother. His brother's the battle side of the war, and there's people like Chumley that are behind the scenes where the the war is like truly won, you know, and fought. Uh, so even though his mom sees uh, his brother as a hero, it's really people like uh, Chumley that are the heroes, you know, kind of choosing where the battles go and how the how the wars actually ultimately won or lost. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And following that, he leaves his uh, Charles leaves his mother's house. And where we go to an assembly of the 20 committee which is these group of like incredibly smart and high ranking uh, members of the Admiralty that all that all have like cheesy jobs in house. Like what's his name? Charles is a, he's a clerk who retrieves records for people, but his actual job is he is a spy master, like a spy coordinator and plan come up or with planner. <laughs> Same thing with Hewan. Hewan sells naval supplies, but he is a renowned, you know, member of the Admiralty spy. Well, he was like an attorney. Like he, he worked in the courts and yeah, saw the court cases and stuff. He talks about so, um, but the and that's the other thing that goes on in this meeting is we find out right off the bat that Godfrey didn't want Montague to be a part of it. He's like, "What's he doing here?" He says to somebody else as they're walking in, they're like, "I invited him." He says that's a mistake. So we see right off the bat that for some reason Godfrey doesn't think very highly of Montague. But uh, we learned during this meeting that Montague is really the the voice. You know, he's the one that Godfrey kind of lays out their current plan and what they plan to do and uh, all these different uh, avenues that they're going to take to try to trick the Germans. And right off the bat, Montague tells them they're like, "That's not going to work." They he needs that we need proof we need something you know like tangible something to trick them something for them to have a reason to move the troops if you do that they're just gonna 
there's if you do your normal ideas, they're just going to see that and just kind of move on. But they need something to actually trick them. So he gets uh, he gets his ear and uh, Chumley chimes in. And that's when Chumley basically tells them that he's been working on that deception plan based on that idea 28, which he calls Operation Trojan Horse. And then right, right off the bat, then Fleming kind of chimes in as well. So it's right up. Right there in that meeting, it's the three of them kind of working together, you know, coming together under Godfrey and Godfrey hates the plan so much that he's just like, y'all two get together and come up with your details and we'll talk about it. So like, he just wants them to, he didn't like either one of them, honestly. Yeah. Uh, he's like, y'all take the plan and go and start working on it and we'll come up with the real plan here. You know, strains a tie and kicks them out of the room. And one, one key thing that uh, Chumley brings up is that he says it's perfect timing for this plan because um, the Germans had just passed up an opportunity. There was a, an airman that, that had fallen and, and, and washed ashore and they did not follow up on the papers that that airman was carrying. And they're like, they're not going to make the same mistake twice. Yeah. So this they, they is were a, an excellent opportunity. Right. So that's what, that's what kind of like uh, Godfrey's, you know, teeter in there is like, all right, I'm, you know, I you know I think it almost seemed like if he wouldn't have if God, if uh, Chumley wouldn't have brought that up, Godfrey probably would have shut it down right there. But he, I think he sees the light in it, and he goes ahead and gives it a shot. And then uh, uh, Fleming, I guess, behind the scenes has kind of pulled some strings and because uh, he's Godfrey's assistant, like he's incredibly quote unquote powerful in the Admiralty because he can just be like, well, so and so says this needs to be done, like because Godfrey's high up. Mm-hmm. He he's he's he speaks directly to Churchill. And as far as we can tell, he's the only person who speaks directly to Churchill. And yeah. during these meetings, he brings his assistant Ian Fleming with him. That's how like, he's that close to the to the pulse. And Fleming Fleming tells him he's like I'm vested in this, and he he pretty much says the reason Godfrey doesn't like that idea is because it's something in the um it's it's something in the uh uh trout memo that he didn't do i i wrote that idea and i based it off of a uh, uh the milliner's hat an idea in the the novel the milliner's hat yeah so uh he uh he so again it's the three of them he he gets them to set up shop and uh it's basically a basement room underneath the the headquarters well, of, of where they do are do you want to explain the plan slightly more in depth the uh, the actual operation so the operation basically is Again, we we mentioned that a, couple um, times, a body washed ashore in in Spain already. The Germans, you know, they they had the corpse of that of that body that washed ashore. That corpse was carrying documents. They didn't follow up on it. So the plan here is to again make some fake documents, uh, alerting them that like they're, they're top secret documents supposedly they're they're sealed in an envelope everything in a briefcase and inside of those documents they're going to explain and uh show it's a, basically a letter from one general to another uh saying that they're going to invade greece and not sicily and the, what they want to do is get the germans to move all their troops from sicily to greece to protect greece because the germans had had control of greece for a long time and they don't want to lose that so that's why they're choosing greece but then sicily is basically the the landmark avenue 
um, supposedly between that, what the allies have decided between, you know, America and Britain and everybody. It's very that if they can, high strategic importance. Right. If they can, if they can get Sicily, then they can commence, you know, with the rest of their, the invasion and win the war. So it's so important that they get Sicily. It's so important that they trick them to move, move the troops. Just like you said, Churchill said earlier, if they don't move those troops, if the Germans don't move those troops out of Sicily, it's going to be a slaughter, uh, an absolute slaughter. So, the, again, the plan is to take a corpse, give them a real identity, um, make it look like this corpse was working for for the Allies, and he crashed. And these documents are now wide 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 in the open, where the Germans can get them and read this and be tricked. So, I mean, is that kind of? I think it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty accurate. I just wanted to like, go into actual details. We run over it briefly. I just want to make sure the listeners know exactly. Yeah, so so basically, hopefully they've give, watched the movie and understand too. But just in case they didn't watch the movie, I wanted to yeah. be clear. Yeah, so this guy, this guy that landed previously, uh, was a was a legitimate soldier, and and he was actually carrying real documents and everything. Uh, this time, they're just getting some random corpse, which uh, it's actually harder for them to find one than than not. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about. Is yeah, that's the, what we're uh, going to go into here, but uh, but yeah, so they they basically just give this corpse complete identity. They created a backstory to him where he's engaged and everything. So there's a lot of work that we're getting ready to talk about that goes into this plan to make it look legit to, to fool the Germans. But uh, go ahead and pick up. I guess the finding the corpse is probably a good place to pick up right now. Because we have we have the setup for the plan and then building and recruiting. And then the, the I call it the corpse montage where they go to like so many different mortuaries and morgues and mausoleum. I don't think mausoleum might be the wrong word, but uh, Hugh and he makes a remark. He's like, why is it so difficult to find the right dead body in this sea of corpses? Because as they go, they start realizing they have to be incredibly accurate about what they're asking for. They're like, yeah, we need someone who's died of a drowning, uh, a man of service age, intact, which shouldn't have to be something they have to ask for, but they learned they had to ask for it because they got several corpses that just didn't have legs. Why would that guy be on a boat? Where his legs? <laughs> <laughs> they had to go into extreme detail. And then so essentially they have to make a, a this real dead man a real man. And it's uh, details, details, details. Like we've, we, that's the majority of this middle part is inventing uh, the story for this corpse. But they have to find the corpse first, which eventually, as luck would have it, they get a hold. They finally, after essentially, human has to cash in uh, an IOU that somebody owes him. Like back when he was a lawyer, he called this what do you call it? mortician or whatever as a um, what's the word expert witness to come in and testify. And it made that dude's career and put him in the position that he is now. And so Hewan kind of cashes as an IOU for a, a corpse. And it, it's it's the perfect one they need. Service age, intact, male, perfect. And it belongs to a, a homeless man who died. They say suicide, but they don't really know. They say he ingested rat poison on bread, which seems an odd so. way to yeah. try to kill yourself. But the character, the, the gentleman's real life name is uh, Glendor Michael. 
one thing I wanted to add about that mortician uh, that that they talked to uh, his the character's name is Bentley Purchase, and it was actually that's a, again another real character in real life. But the actor that plays him is Paul Ritter, and this was his last movie. They actually kind of like dedicated it to him. So again, he's a really cool character as well. Yeah, uh, he 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 comes in again. He comes in a couple times throughout the movie. There's a key moment that will happen here later when we get to it that he he has a he's a prominent m- member of. But they they finally get their corpse, and so they're like, okay, we need to start hammering out these details, detail, details. Because he can only be preserved for three months, so they need to get on the ball. Yeah, because he he he's in the the coldest freezer that they have, but he's already started to decompose before they put him in there. So we're we're you know we're biting the bullet, and so they're like, we need a name. And so what's the best way to come up with the name is they go through literally the entire army register, find them the, the most common last name and try to combine it with the most common first name. And it ends up being uh, William Martin, a.k.a. Bill, Bill Martin, major. Was it major? Yeah, major, major, yeah. major William Martin, because he needed to be. A high, a high enough ranking officer to be carrying such classified documents. So they had to make the story believable. And then it starts going in like, you know, they start like, oh, he uh, just details that, that don't matter, but do matter because they had to come up with, they had to create a permanent record for him that they the character give him, was uh, they give smart, him almost genius, level, but uh, con- constantly late to everything. He's, he was never punctual. And then uh, what's her name? Hester. His uh his secretary, she's been you know in, in the film the whole time. She's literally his his assistant who helped recruit more people for their operation. She's the one who's like to make the story more believable. He should have a lover, or very least a love letter that makes you know because you know why would someone fight so hard if they didn't have anything to come home to? And so that creates a whole other aspect that these two men didn't really think about, and so. Mm-hmm. They're like, do we need a love letter? If we're going to get a love letter, we should have a picture of the woman, of, of the woman who wrote the letter that he could keep in his, you know, in his breast pocket close to his heart and then keep her letter like in his, you know, in his back pocket because he read, read it so much. And, oh, before I go any further, I did want to mention this tiny little tidbit because when Hester was recruiting people, uh, she recruited two other girls to help intercept like Cyber Morse code and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, why are we doing it? And uh, she's like, well, because it's going to be for the 20 committee. And one of the girls asked, she's like, 20 committee? That's a weird name to name a aspiring. And the other girl goes, it's because it's Roman numerals. She's like, huh? She's like, the Roman numeral for 10, for 20 is two X's. And the girl goes, oh, double cross. That's clever. And I thought she thought that that was really, really clever, honestly, of the the 20 committee is the double cross room the double cross branch of the government i thought that was you know really deeply hidden and i thought not even really deeply but it was just i thought it was fun and interesting worth noting and all that was like again that's like true stuff that they talked about that they really did call it the double cross yeah and then uh, they did they did do like they snuck a lot of little things like that into this screenplay like little true art like facts you know that's the best best way to do stuff like it's like one of those things like much more about this movie is true than you realize Mm -hmm. but then it's based 100 on real stuff so okay that's why i went uh, on the love letter that's why i left off of and so they're like we need a picture and 
they're like, we feel weird going around to women asking them for a photograph. So how do we do this? And human thinks on it for a little bit. And uh, do I take over from here? I feel like I've been talking for a minute. Well, I mean, Montague basically approaches, uh, not Montague, I'm sorry. Chumley basically approaches Jean Leslie, but he approaches her about something else, like asking some people. Well, he he approached her 110% because he just wanted a reason to talk to her because she was pretty. But he spoke to her to try to get a, a, a photograph. He's like, you're familiar with the ladies on this floor. I've seen how you interact with them. I watch you. But not like watch you in a creepy way, but I watch you and see how you interact with people and that you're friendly with some of the girls in the, in the, the Admiralty. And I was wondering if you would think one of them would be OK with us have taking a picture. Like he has this whole because con- he's really awkward. He's re- for someone who's such a you know professional spy man. He's really awkward when it comes to talking to a pretty girl. <laughs> Bless his heart. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, he basically goes to her, obviously because of that. He has two reasons, but he he I don't he doesn't even think about uh getting a picture of her, but she gets a metal box out of her desk, opens it up, hands him a picture, and says, How does this look? My husband took it at me. And uh he's like, Oh gosh, I mean, killing two birds with one stone here. I'm getting to talk to you and I'm getting the picture off the bat. But um getting a uh a beach photo. I don't think she was in a bikini, but she was looked really pretty like a sundress on a beach. And I saw the real life that real life photo online. Kelly McDonald looks exactly like that lady. I'm it's sure crazy. They, I'm sure she they put on some prosthetic and stuff. They they made her look. Yeah, she said she basically gives. She says, "I'll give you this in exchange for a seat at the table." I thought. I mean, obviously, I guess it happened in real life, but I just thought that was kind of like weird because she was just a secretary. She was yeah. in that. Oh, she was in that first twenty committee meeting taking the notes so she heard you know everything uh, about it and like the operation uh trojan horse and so she was privy to everything that was going to go on but she asked for a seat at the table and he's like done you know i just thought that was kind of weird again like so many things just seem like kind of rushed but again like you said he had feelings for her so he'd probably be like i'll do anything to make you happy basically. anything so, to be able to talk to you more yeah so so she's like now it's the foursome now it's the uh, Miss Leggett, Montague, Chumley, and now uh, Jean Leslie. It's the four of them pretty much making decisions for everything. Uh, so they've got the photo ready for the love letter, and the next step is taking actual photos of uh, the corpse to for the you know to look alive and everything and, and that's have on the, record and stuff on his badge it's the funniest part of the movie really to me there's just like propping this corpse up and he's he looks like a zombie the whole time and, oh god he looks and, terrifying <laughs> he, uh, and even comments on it he's like good he lord don't make dead, him smile bentley. <laughs> yeah, but uh but bentley says something like uh, well let's find a person that looks like him and uh right off the bat I mean, montague's like a, a person that looks like the corpse and he says, in the city of nine million, we're sure to find somebody. And I guess Gene, you know, they look around and stuff and start looking. There's like the little mini montage of them trying to find somebody that looks like him. But Gene, I guess, uh, right off the bat, thinks that he resembles Dearborn, played by uh, the the other McFadden that, that we talked about earlier. Where a, we mentioned a actors. That, you know, a gentleman caller that she's been speaking to and, you know, passing the time with. And he he was the one that was in the movies with her, and whenever uh, Chumley was going to make his move At on the her, very but, beginning of the movie, yeah, yeah. But uh, so yeah, I mean, he's 
he comes in they're all they're all at a, at a bar like a that that little club or whatever they the gargoyle club what the, that's called. the gargoyle club the gar- gargoyle club yeah and they go to a few different places i couldn't remember which one that was but yeah the so they bring roger in and uh right off the bat they're all kind of like oh but uh gene obviously brought him in because she she thought so and right i mean they all agree and they give him like Roger some little story like we want you to do this, be this part of the operation where you come in and take some photos for us. They obviously don't tell him the details of everything that's going on, so they kind of trick him. But he thinks but he's, he's taking he's, photos for one thing. But the poor Dearborn, just like um, Chumley, is uh, smitten with yeah. uh, Gene Leslie. He's like anything to spend more time with you, sure. Yeah, but he's 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 more suave though. He's not as like desperate oh, yeah. as Chumley, he's and he's suave. in. The other thing to mention about him is he's American. You know, he's an American soldier, which is the like pretty cool how he's working with them as an American. Oh, yeah. but, I mean, obviously they're all allies, but uh, everybody else is that that we were dealing with in this movie pretty much are British uh, intelligence. Anyway, so they they get their man, they get the pictures of him, and uh, the next thing that really happens, I'm again, I'm not sure what all we want to kind of. I skip think over, this is but, kind of the uh, quote unquote date between uh gene and hewan which culminates in the creation of pam who is the the fake love interest for major bill martin who and so there's a whole like weird dance scene with like a big band in the background and them dancing and hewan walking around the crowd like kind of like a creeper eyeball but he's not he's not being creepy he's smiling and they're you know he's waving because they're being friendly but it it just seems kind of weird because like why are you so he's also like older and he's protective of this young woman and this was kind of alluding to like how much of this we want to get into but that's that's the main thing that we do want to say is that they they begin this little thing and I sh- again how much they is Montague I mean how 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 mutual the feelings are but he's basically walking her home and she goes into that club and he follows she like has him follow her in like you said she starts dancing with somebody and then he's watching and then the whole Pam and Bill backstory does originate here but well because she like, goes in she goes ooh it's Bill and Pam's song and she pulls him into the club she pretty much writes the whole backstory, like yeah, con- yeah. like she's constantly saying this and that and this and that. Um, so Gene, that is like Gene Leslie's main part is she she does like say this is what that would happen to them. And but again, how much of that was relevant because Leggett is the one that ends up writing the letter, the love yeah. letter. Again, just bro, I know I know you you want to yeah. say something, but I'm just gonna say real fast, the novel and the movie. This is like basically the one thing that's not in the novel. This is all screenwrite, like from this lady that wrote the script. This is all um doesn't exist in real life. So the dancing my, crap. No, the the love triangle between like Gene oh. Leslie, Montague, and Chumley. And it's just like such a waste of time. Like, oh. why even have it in the movie? Because none of this even happened in real life. Instead of spending time on this we need to spend time on some of the other things that have been that have been rushed and become really rushed in like the last quarter of the movie but uh 
again, I just this whole part just bothered me. It, but but like you said, it's the, the main thing we want to talk about is um Gene starts discussing the Pam of backstory. Pam. But again, how much of that even needs to be? It because well, so go ahead. You had your hand up. Yeah, well, we, no, up to right now, it's nothing important by any stretch of the imagination. But I said this scene was kind of creepy. It, it gave me um, deep water vibes. Mm. <laughs> like the older gentleman, a much younger lady, and she's off. He willingly let her go dance with other people. And he's just like, like in a different light, they could be super creepy. <laughs> but he yeah. was instead being kind of paternal and protective in this moment but it would go on to be other things which were yeah. unnecessary. It's just, it's, it's the whole part is just that whole, just little subplot. Just, I, it just irks me so much in again, we'll, we'll get to some other yeah. stuff later. Um, on, but... Immediately after this, we have another of the typewriter, tink, 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 another typewriter title card. Early March. We've jumped two months and there's a, a funny line of dialogue where to go. This is human. Human says this. He's like, two months in, and we've managed to deceive the we've deceived the enemy nothing. in precisely nothing. Yeah, because they got a newsletter saying that their uh, the army was still holding strong in Sicily with no plans to move anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, but then out during this two month uh thing, you find out you can, you can you have to infer through meetings with Godfrey, but some a lot of the other plans have fallen through and been found out or whatever. And so Operation Mincemeat is still going strong while other ones are failing. So Godfrey is not a happy camper because this is the one he, he hated the most is so far, though they haven't actually succeeded, they haven't flat out failed like some of the other missions. So it's still their, you know, a high chance of success because it hasn't failed. Which, and again, makes it weird that uh, Montague even said that line because it's like he he didn't think it would do anything to begin with. I mean, that yeah, was this exactly. whole thing at the 20 committee. He basically said that stuff isn't going to work. Um, so then, I, I don't know, that line, whenever he said that, I'm just like, okay, you didn't think it was going to work. So what? I mean, but, uh, the next really big thing that happens is uh, Godfrey has that one-on-one meeting with Chumley and he pretty much asks he he tells Chumley that he's going to present the plan to Churchill which again like Churchill hasn't even really approved this to this point they're just like working on it behind the scenes um like nothing's been said so like go ahead and take the corpse out to see drop it none of that stuff has been okayed by Churchill they're just um right up to this point the group of uh Gene and um Leggett and uh Montague and Chumley are just putting everything together and creating the details. But here, Godfrey tells Chumley, I'm going to go ahead and present it to Churchill this afternoon. And then he also tells Chumley that he thinks Montague's brother is a spy and opens up that whole window and yeah. kind of throws a wrench into uh into the trust wrench into their relationship. So there's already this like jealousy a little bit between Chumley and Montague, Chumley of Montague, I guess, because he's getting close to Gene, and also this, which again, in real life, apparently, neither of those two things that there was never a love triangle, and apparently, the spy thing was never like that big of a deal either. So, I don't think Godfrey even said this to him. So, again, this whole like wedge that goes in between Chumley 
and Montague is just stupid and a waste of time because it goes nowhere anyways. But again, I just, it really irked me that they like throw these things in there for no reason yeah. whatsoever. There was a uh, couple of things. Uh, this right here, this morning of the two months later was the morning where they, um, the row was blocked because the little girl found the unexploded firebomb in, mm. in the garden. Like that was, it was that morning. Yeah. He walks and, in Montague saying like, I was in traffic because of that or whatever. Yeah. And then a little bit later during this same scene, like you said, it, it, it's, it's unnecessarily driving a wedge, but I bring it up because this was a pretty decent kind of funny line. Gene had been talking to some general about getting additional supplies or something. And he's like, it better not. Uh, and Hewan goes, it better not have been Hesper. He's a real skirt chaser. So they don't believe anything that this man says. And then Gene responds, uh, my skirt can defend itself. Thank you very much, commander. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the, she says that line. And then the girls behind Charles giggle. And Gene goes on her way and Hewan goes on his way. And then that's this is with a wedge and like pointless interpersonal drama that comes in. Like he turns around, he's like, "What? That's his position. He's commander of this operation." And the girls like, hey, "They look so much closer. A couple of weeks ago at the club, he, he they were dancing. Like they were just on like you know being a little gossip, be a little you know chatter hens." Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's at the end. It, like why? Why do we need all this extra yeah. nonsense? It's just, it's a waste of time. It's stupid. And then she does, she says, I, when I saw them three weeks ago, and it just said two months later, right? So yeah. we saw that scene with them at that club. So I guess maybe we're to... They've maybe. had additional right research dates. Yeah. Which again, just all that stuff is just a waste of time. But, um, but okay, so... <laughs> Then there's the like I said the pointless investigation of Ivor to further drive a wedge between uh, Hewan and Chumley, but then we get a huge wrench in the plan where they get a call from the um, what do you call him physician mortician where they got Glendor the dead body um, where they got the body and it's a Bentley purchase uh, with a big hunk of bad news saying that the deceased's unknown sister has showed up to claim her brother's body. Uh-oh. You wanna... I guess this really happened in real life, because I, from what I read, yeah. no, nothing ever said that she didn't really do that. But, And again, I mean, it sucks. It doesn't really do anything to the story other than it makes Montague and Chumley feel like absolute shit. You know what I'm yes. saying? They basically have to lie to her. Uh, they 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 tell they do tell her he's going to be a hero, which he is. You know that's and they and Churchill Churchill actually gives uh, uh Fleming the news that everything's been okay to go, mm-hmm. and Fleming comes in the room to deliver that right in front of the girl, which you know he called there. They said that he's going to be a hero for the country, but again, the girl all she is focused on is this is my brother. I want to be able to give him a proper burial. Where is he? I want to see his body, but she can't see or do any of that. Go ahead. Well, uh, that scene I wanted to talk about with, but I, th- I thought it happened after, well, according to my notes, but I guess it happened before, which is, it may have been framed storyly because he shows up and then the scene happens. But anyway, but Godfrey is giving the, the, the plan to Churchill and he's uh, basically saying that the plan is stupid. 
but it's also ingenious because everything about this plan that could blow up in their face and be wrong is exactly why exactly what germany needs to hear to believe it and so it's, it's, that's like intercut with this by the way yeah okay so it, which it's is weird it's not... because it's like two different timelines because fleming shows up in there you know what i'm saying yes yeah, so that's why because, i thought it was confusing yeah they start they start the scene with the girl like you said saying that and then they cut to that meeting with churchill and then they cut back to that scene with uh with with uh glendor's sister and fleming comes in there so again just weird editing there makes yeah. no sense timeline wise but yeah like you said that that does happen there with churchill he's like poking holes in that plan um but he he uh okays it anyways there's a funny little bit of dialogue here between churchill and godfrey is when he's given all the details and churchill explains to him like he said pokes the holes he's like so when can it be ready and he's like you 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 like the plan he's like yes when can it be ready and godfrey's like immediately with a question mark because <laughs> well, he didn't Godfrey's think that like, he was going to like the plan he's like again still like against it and like pushing church trying to push church on a different way and talking about russia and he's he's even talking about uh ivo uh montague's brother and, um, and he's like what do we care about one communist against ten thousand lives yeah and churchill says something like russia's tomorrow's war yeah, exactly. You know, like I, I don't. I don't We're don't allies today. We'll worry about them if they become a a, 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 a rival. Uh, nemesis. But then there's the whole. I did want to. Mention, I had this in my notes. Churchill's like concerned about the the ink on the letter, um, yeah. washing away, being in the in the water, and they talk about it being invisible ink. Or, I mean, that whole thing. It's like whatever happens with. Like I don't know. Like that's one thing that confused they me. Talk about it in like another sentence in the following scene, and they just kind of sweep it under the rug. It, so it what did happen? Because obviously this all was successful and it all worked. What was the final thing with the ink? Well, they didn't. They had to use a certain type of ink to keep it from being like melted away in the salt water and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like cool. It need it needed to fade appropriately. Because this guy had to look like he'd been floating in water for, you know, a while. Not may not have, you know, it didn't have to be months, but he had to be in there for a couple of days. So they but had they to make it. They were worried though about like that detail, like the Germans being able to tell that that was a specific kind of ink and thinking yeah. it was fake. So I guess they didn't like they didn't they didn't think anything of it. Yeah, they, they didn't they, like they, analyze he specifically that part, didn't or? use waterproof ink. They used like semi malleable. So that in case the documents had been fallen to, that they would have a chance to like become invalid. But there had to be enough left over so that when the Germans this back did and they forth talk about like, that in detail in this? They did, but it, it was like literally two sentences, and it's left up to you to uh, infer a bunch of the information with this okay. back and forth. So that's what I was going for. I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean that's what I got out of it too. This again, this is one of the things that I wish they would have spent maybe a minute longer on than to have any of these other stupid subplots with the love triangle. You know what I'm saying? Like that would have helped out immensely. So anyway, go ahead. Well, not much. There's a quip about from a Chumley because a bunch of people are, are like writing novels and some of them have been published and become great successful. I have that in the note too. (laughs) And he's like, 
who isn't writing a novel right now? This is oh insane. My God, who isn't writing a novel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. And so uh, we have an, a, a meeting for Godfrey to tell everybody that this is the plan we're going forward with. Every, all, everyone needs to stop and abandon the plans we're working on, and we need to work on Operation Mincemeat. This Matter is fact, where we're in, your boy Ainsworth. He brings in two folk from Spain. Ainsworth and Jean Bear. Don Gomez Bayer or something? Bayer, yeah, Bayer. He's in um, Huelva or whatever, and Ainsworth is in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And so the plan is to have a body pop up off the coast of Huluva, which is a, a coastal town that's like south there, I think. I'm horrible at geography, but it's near M- Madrid. And so it needs to go from Huluva to Madrid to Berlin. And so they're trying to purposely feed the information on purpose to the German spies that they're aware of. Two in particular, one in Huluva with a gentleman named uh, Adolf Klaus. And then in Madrid, which is Klaus's superior, is a gentleman named Kurenthal. But he's actually stupid. But he's like, you know, he knows some people that know some people that puts him in a position of power. And so they want to use a really good spy to get the information to the really bad spy because he's a bad spy so that he'll spread the misinformation to try to impress his superiors. Right. So it's just this whole weird, like this, I, this is where things start to get a little cloudy this, because they yeah, go but through. This is literally the halfway point of the movie. Exactly. So they've spent a whole hour of the movie with all the stuff that we just talked about. Just, and then this, all these other things where they introduce all these other key players and parts to what needs to happen they basically just introduce them by names and you have yeah. no idea who's who. I mean, it just gets to me anyways. It just got so even watching it two, three times, I, I was still confused. Like who's who and who is whose motive is this? And I don't know, but that all that stuff is just so rushed. But then they, the other guy that, that that's mentioned here is the Alexis von Ron, Roney or Ron? R- Ronan von Ronan. Yeah. He's like Hitler's favorite advisor. In my opinion, this guy is like the reason for everything being a success. Oh, yeah. Um, Because, I mean, Hitler will listen to anything this guy says. And apparently this guy's working against Hitler behind the scenes. He's part of the anti-Nazi regiment or anti-Nazi hoax or whatever they called him. But he's, yeah, not hoax because it ends up being true. But, yeah, he ends up being an anti realistically being an anti not he hates hitler and something happens a little bit later we'll get to i mean fairly soon really that uh the whole plan would have been blown up if not for this guy uh from what i understand and i guess we'll talk about it and see if i'm right but um so yeah so those those three players are actually like four players i guess the the two guys uh that the british guys that are working in for them and then the two spies they're trying to get the plans into and then von Rohn. um but uh all these players are introduced in this meeting and then we come to see them a little bit later on in m- montages and stuff and that's it um but uh yeah during this so scene the- it does that um like this is kind of like a, a like a building character like montage where the whole point of part of their plan is some of the letters that Major Martin, Major William Martin, Glendor Michael is carrying is a concord some correspondence between two generals. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, General Archie and General Nye, or is his name Archie Nye? Archie Nye, yeah. That's He's their... Archie Nye. Yeah. Uh, and it's supposed to be a letter between them because they're friends. And we're on the first draft of the letter, and God, uh, Hewan takes to Godfrey, and Godfrey says this is going to be rewritten until the entire board approves. So he gets big down to 14 drafts deep where they keep rejecting to get over minute details. It's like, this general wouldn't sound like that, or this general wouldn't ask these questions, blah, blah, blah. It needs to be more friendly, less friendly. Like, it just keeps so many fingers in that pie. And then but they're just so angry. Uh, Montague and Chumley are chit-chatting. He's like, he's like, if we could just get Nye to write the letter himself, it would look exactly like my first letter that I wrote. Wait a minute. I know like so and so who's assistant to General Nye. And so they go around Godfrey and include this Nye guy, which seems very unprofessional and very not what you should do in a spy situation. Going behind your superiors, yeah. But they go to this guy and they say, Hey, we need you to write a letter to this general that you're friends with. He's like, Okay. And he writes the letter and Godfrey reads it. And he's like, this is boring. This is trash. Why is this exactly like your first letter? And he's like, actually, that was penned by General Nye himself. And then mm-hmm. Godfrey gets real mad, but he can't do anything because they need it. They, we have no time to be mad right now. I'd be mad if there's, you know, because if it fails, we all die. And that's the thing. Chummy's like, look, look, uh, the corpse is overripe. <laughs> We need, yeah. we need to go. You need to, you need to pull the plug. We, if we, if we don't go. have him by the 30th, which is like two or three weeks away, then the mission's a bust. We have to go quick. Yeah. And then there's a whole, like I said, the, 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 the love letter is finished around the same time and they do the reading of the love letter, which is very sweet. That's it's had to be very scene. near and dear to uh, Hester's heart because she looks, sounds like she's, she said some stuff that like maybe was from her past because her husband has passed. And so she's addicted to work. She stays working constantly. I don't think she ever goes home. Yeah. Her and, and Jean says, are both widows. Yeah. It, it is brought up that they're both widows. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jean and Hester. But during all this, they finally, it's time to, to prep the cor- or the corpse. And so they're, you know, putting in the, the, the letter. Well, one, the f- one thing that happens uh, after that love letter scene, whenever they, they do that, it, again, it's a, uh, Jean and Hester Leggett and Montague and Chumley all there while they, while she reads that letter. And Jean reads the letter. She reads uh, the letter that Leggett wrote. Um, Montague walks Jean home and he says, you have an eyelash. And he takes that eyelash off of her eye and he keeps it. Yeah, she and thinks then, it's flirting, but right. humans, like, he's flirting, but... I was going to say it is flirting, but then I... I think like on the way home, he kind of has an idea or whatever, but yeah. while they're preparing the corpse, I was just going to say, this is key for that scene. So go ahead. Cause they explained that like, we have to fold the letter precisely so that it looks like it's only been folded one time by the person who wrote the letter. Like there's all these instructions of mm-hmm. how to make it look a hundred percent legit. And they're taking photos of everything. So they have proof of what it looked like when it left. So if it comes back, they can see if it's been tampered with. And this guy in there that's giving him all this advice, that is Fleming's inspiration for Q, by the way. The yeah. the guy in the Bond movies with all the gadgets. And mm-hmm. he even has some gadgets and Fleming's yeah, looking you, at you him. Talk, I was going to bring that up. Do you want to talk about that since you brought it up? Well, I mean, it was just that, I mean, they're in there looking at stuff and uh, 
that guy's going over some of the details and Fleming's just kind of looking on the shelves and he sees that watch and he asks the yes what what is that guy's what is the character's name well, this they keep is... calling it Q Branch, but I, I don't know if that's the character's name. That's just the building he's in, the Q Branch. That's just the building. But yeah, I mean, he's the inspiration for Q. But I mean, does he look at some other? Well, he's looking at this gadgets? whole wall and he picks up because he, he's talking about the thing. He's like, huh, if a Fleming's character, he's like, what's this watch do? And the guy goes, buzzsaw. And he keeps on like going. He's like, no, are you serious? He's like, yeah, you press the dial and it the it rotates and it's a saw. And Ian, Hol- Ian Fleming holds the watch up and presses the button, and you hear it spool up, and, and he's like, "Huh, that's pretty cool." And he sets it back down, and then, you know, it's just a pointless. But that's really just a hint at Ian Fleming writing Bond stuff. Is really all that was for is a cool little yeah. reference and stuff. And who knows? That may have been partially true, but I don't think me. Maybe who knows. No, the, the, all that stuff was true. Like Fleming really did base those characters off of these people in this. I mean, operation. like the buzzsaw watch was that a real thing? This dude just happened to have. Oh, I bet it was. It's possible, you know, because he's described as a gadget guy. God, I'm trying to find his character's name, but anyway, go ahead. All right, so we're preparing the corpse. Uh, we we get the corpse prepared, and now we have to go. Uh, but they they put this, the eyelash in that in that letter. Yeah, they they put the eyelash in the letter. So like if the eyelash is gone when they get the letter back, someone obviously read the letter. You know, it's like added security is proof that someone read the letter. And during all of this, they have to they booked a submarine because they realized that they can't parachute the corpse in like they wanted to to make it look like a, a plane land because they were afraid that the body would explode on impact, essentially. <laughs> and so they found it was better to release it via a submarine, which they had booked earlier in the movie. The uh, the Seraph is what the, the submarine was called. Mm-hmm. And then they had to get a driver to get out there. This gentleman named uh, Jock Horseford. Jock. And he's he, he's a he's a character. I like actually like, like like that character pretty good for this one. The two scenes he has. Uh, and he's he was acting like a huge drunkard in front of uh, Hewan, Chumley, and the girls. And the girls finally leave Hester and Jean. And as soon as they leave, he sobers up immediately. Like it was all a trick. Even though he's had like eight drinks, he's not drunk. He Montague tells the waiter to cut him off. <laughs> yeah. He was like, so uh, what's this plan really? You're telling me that there's media- meteorological tools in this canister. You know how high my clearance goes. What is this? And well, Montague go, tells him that it's it's, it's meteorological stuff, and he goes bollocks. <laughs> he's like, you know how my tell me the truth. <laughs> and they immediately tell him he must have some really high clearance. Like again, that's a character I would like to know more about, but he has like this one scene, these two yeah. scenes, and done. And then you know they drive out to the to the submarine. During the drive, however, this is a kind of like important character moment, but also more wedge driving for like yeah. you said really no reason but it, charles this could goes, have been a good scene for other reasons like spend this time between montague and chumley talking about something else you know what i'm saying yeah. but instead instead chumley confesses to hewan that he's been spying on his brother uh for godfrey and it creates a division they get mad at one another and it's um it makes for an uncomfortable ride back home but against everybody else's knowing, Charles had secured a spot 
on the serif because he felt that someone needed to be with Major Martin, aka, well, Glendor Michael is the real name, aka Major William Martin, mm-hmm. on his voyage. Someone needed to be there to, you know, say some words for him and be there. Because they, yes, it's a fictional well, character, but they've grown close to this course because of how important it is for the war. Like they've grown, as weird as that sounds, but they've well, they, grown, they want to respect this dude. Yeah, I mean, just like whenever his sister, whenever the uh, Glendor Michael's sister was there, I mean, they they felt terrible. I mean, Montague even said something like, uh, what was his line? It was like, God, God help us or something like that. Or, um, But he felt terrible. So, I mean, yeah, and that was a, a cool thing by Chumley. He straight up said, I want, I want to go there to pay some respects. Uh, but one thing I wanted to say before they even take that drive, um, whenever Montague is with uh, Jock, Chumley leaves the table and he goes and dances with uh, Jean. And he basically lays this big guilt trip on her about Montague and Montague's family. And um, again, all this time wasted uh, on that stupid subplot where it could have been a different scene between we could have found out more about Jock or more about some other stuff. But again, just five, ten minutes completely wasted on this. And that's something else that Montague's upset with uh, uh, Chumley about whenever he confronts him about uh, Chumley saying that he's going to go uh, be with the corpse and that he has that spot on the submarine. But uh, but go ahead. So we're going to pick up there, I guess, whenever. There's a, that during that same scene where Charles dances with Jean and, you know, reminds her that humans married and his family's in America, she goes to leave and human tries to stop her he's like why where, where are you going and she said that she's embarrassed at her own stupidity and he's like what does that even mean and then she leaves but then he's got to continue on with the mission and then during their car ride is when like i said charles confesses that he's been following ivor and that uh he uh told gene the truth about Hewan that you're married and you, you need to stop acting like lovesick children. And then Hewan gets mad at him. They, you know, and he's, he gets to drive back with Jock and Charles Chumley takes the submarine and they get time to cool off one another. So when Chumley finally comes back they're they are happy and excited to see him because they've let all that Hewan's a man enough to not that the stuff bother him because he got to focus on the mission, the duty and the honor of what's going on. And Hewan, as soon as he, he basically, he takes that truck back with Jock and goes immediately back to uh Jean and like kind of pleads his case with her again. It's just, and again, it's just all that stuff between those two. It's like the same scene five different times. It's just I, like, yeah, seriously. I like you, but I don't like you. I'm a married, I'm a happily married man with two children that I adore in America, but you're young and you find me attractive and I'm old and I find you. Attra- it's, it was it's like horrible screenwriting. It, this it, it'd be different if this was like make believe and this was supposed to be like an erotic war thriller spy thing, but all this was real and you know, none of this stuff matters. And so it mm-hmm. definitely did take away from the movie. In my opinion, mm-hmm. I, my, I, my, I rolled my eyes a bunch during their scenes. Yeah. I was like, Oh, good Lord. And the other thing, too, with all this is even though this is a true story and we know how it ends, if we wanted to, if we did, if we, if we wanted to read about it or if we knew history beforehand, 
it, there's no suspense really. You know what I'm saying? It's just like things playing out. Like it's here's a scene A to Z. We're done with it. We're moving on to the scene. Here's a scene A to Z. We're moving on. We're done with it. There's like no like building suspense or uh, I mean there are tons and but tons. What of- happens here in the, in this little middle part is probably the best writing in the whole thing because this is actually about story and uh, unfolding of events and stuff this was the best part this was the domino effect right here in the middle was the be- I, I feel was the best part of the movie so this the, when they d- drop the body into the, the yeah, sea once once they drop the body for the next 30 minutes is probably the best part of the movie but it's so rushed though it is it's in, it, it, it that also that, it, it's I rushed agree. but it, it also could, I, I'll say it could have been the best part of the movie it, it should have been the best part of the movie, but it's just so rushed. Um, this this is an hour and twenty minutes into the movie, by the way, and the movie's two hours long. Like so, there's forty, barely forty minutes or so left of the movie, and we're just now dropping the body into the sea. An hour and twenty minutes into the movie, and then they all this stuff that that happens after this is is just crammed into the rapid fire minutes. shotgun, just mm-hmm. very rapid fire, but. One detail we didn't mention earlier that I want to mention now because it plays a key point is that the reason they needed a drowning victim because then he needed to have drowned in salt water that was in the off the coast of Huluva. Like they had some samples of water and they put, you know, they made it as if he had actually drowned there. And they're like, don't worry, uh, Huluva is a very small rural town that's half the police force is corrupted with uh german soldiers and german spies and then it's such a small town the local physician isn't going to be able to determine the actual cause of death he'll just assume drowning because he'll be so he'll he'll be such a bumpkin you know some random you know probably some random vet they've pulled into service because they don't have they don't have any manpower like that's like the whole that's their focus and the reason that they you know they they did this and then they drop the body. There's just a long, suspenseful waiting. We get the body. And the body makes it to town. The first, not Ainsworth, but the other guy, Bear, is contacted by the local. Because Madrid is neutral. And they're making a big show of that they're neutral by helping both Germany and Britain. By not allowing German soldiers into the this British investigation, but contacting Britain, allowing them to come in. And when they get there, Bear is like, I'm so sorry. You must be really hard for such a small town local physician to be having to deal with this. And he's like, and <laughs> this was really funny. The physician's like, oh, actually, the physician, the local guy died and they brought me in from the university. <laughs> I'm actually the head of pathology at the University of Madrid. And I specialize in drowning victims. Drowning. So I'm super <laughs> excited to do this case. It's just like the worst thing that could have happened. Yep. And it was just, oh God. And then as soon as he says that, he goes into the building to start performing the autopsy. And the uh like the, the admiral officer for Madrid was like, You're lucky you came. This happened now, not a week ago. He's like, I literally just fired half the police force for being corrupt German spies. <laughs> <laughs> boom two sentences and they blown up their entire plan for madrid or for a uh, haluva 
and, and then again, like you said, all this it. stuff could have been suspenseful if they spend a little bit more time it, on it, but it's like rushed through it and made it comical, mm-hmm. which I don't get me wrong. I, and I laughed. I enjoyed these parts more than I enjoyed the first part of the movie because it was just character and it was kind of funny. And then they have to go in this huge elaborate like excuses to why he's not going to take the the stuff and needs to go back to base because they need to follow protocol. But protocol is it's his stuff, but they have to get approved by their officials. And he's like purposely being like a stickler for the rules. Bear is to try to get the so they because they want Germans to steal the information. But these guys are so good at their job that they're not letting German spies steal the information. Mm-hmm. And then enter. This is the part I, 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 why this character kind of became one of my favorites. Ainsworth enter Captain David Ainsworth. And he is told that he, in order to get into a room that's uh, not bugged, every room in this building is bugged, but one, and he has to get to that room. And they say it's about time that he goes visits old friends. So he, you know, he scampers over to because he he is based in Madrid, just like Bear was based in Haluva. Like they're actually in Spain, so it's not like they're like magically hopping across the pond. They're, they've been there. That's their base of operations. They went back there, so he has connections. So he goes into this office building, and he was like, speaks to this, you know, the cute, you know, flirts with this cute girl behind the counter, and he's like, "Hey, I need to hear everything going on in that room." And she's like, mm, okay. And she takes him away like you think it's going to be some sort of secret meeting and stuff. But no, they're just going down to the basement to fool around. She's all kissing. I'm like, oh, mi amor. And I love you. I miss you. You're, I miss your touch. And the whole time like, he's talking, his narration, he's like, yeah, I heard every word that happened in that thing. Because he's just like, he's finger banging her. He's finger blasting her all day long, every day. And she is loving every second of it. And he couldn't. He even tells her to be quiet because he's trying to listen. <laughs> yeah, she's like all over him and he's just like his head's leaning back trying to listen to the room. Behind he literally him has his, uh, his head back and his ear stuck against the door while he's handling her, quote unquote. But all this stuff that it's just like so, I don't know. I just, you, you're as the Norton, I, I can see why this movie wasn't as successful as it should have been, I guess. But like stuff like this is just like, why is he doing this? What what we we barely know this Ainsworth guy. We've had like two lines of dialogue to explain why he's in this situation. There's just like I don't know, like you said, it's all this stuff that's so important, but it's just made comical. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but and then but, uh, he uh, Ainsworth gets the information that he needs, and but it's not enough. Now he has to they have to heavy handedly tell the Germans that this is important information because Ainsworth says that for a while he pretended to be a double agent for Germany whilst being a triple agent and still actually working for the British the entire time. So there's a whole, that's Mm -hmm. confusing double agent, triple agent stuff right there for this character. Exactly. But Ainsworth makes a call to a, uh, a friend of the Fuhrer. And they have a very clandestine meeting in the dark in a park. It's a Rudy. Yeah. And so Ainsworth is like, blah, blah, blah. Don't tell the people, but these are very important. I don't need anyone looking for him besides, you know, it's something that the Fuhrer needs to put his eyes on directly. And so 
uh, this gentleman he's uh, meeting with goes, oh, and what do his hands need to do? And he pulls Ainsworth's hands into his lap and Ainsworth has to handle him too. <laughs> poor poor Ainsworth having to do a lot of handling, anything for his country. And so Ainsworth handles him. But there's a play on words where he says this particular guy is a takes a very unique way to handle. Little do, do they know what he's having to do to handle this man. And he gets the information. He convinces this guy that this case needs to, you know, the evidence needs to be taken back to Hitler. And like I said, this is all just boom, 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 rapid fire information. And lo and behold, we get the case back. The case ends up back in the base of operations with Hewan, with Montague and Chumley. And so they're and they're moved back down into the Q branch with Q. And they have to slowly lay out all the evidence to figure out what's been hampered and touched by the German spies. And there's a whole elaborate thing about the seal of the letter not being broken. But if you're very meticulous and careful, you can, with a pair of like, what do you call them? Tweezers or whatever, like pull the letter out of the opening you're talking about. Yeah, but there's it's a medical term for those tweezers. They're tweezers that can like lock into place. And so he sticks them in there and you, you can twist them into a, a fine spool, spool, spiral, and then pull the letter out without actually opening the letter or damaging the casing. But the only way to tear that is like if you wet the, the letter again and let it curl up in the way that it had been taken out. Mm-hmm. And they discovered that the letter had been taken out and the eyelash, that the was, eyelash was missing. Yep. So they, they believe that it had been read and they're... Humans were willing to go for it. Uh, but Chumley's like, I don't think we should risk 10,000 lives on an eyelash. Yeah, that's the line. That's we're that's not a pretty... sending 100,000 men into battle for an eyelash, is what he says. They take the, they take the evidence to Godfrey, and then Godfrey takes it up to Churchill, and they're like, it's our best option. We just have to see what happens. Right. Is it before Churchill, though? Gene is this is like it, is it before I thought it happened at, anyway yeah but Gene you want to talk about this scene so Gene's Gene goes home and this guy just walks into her or he's I guess he's already waiting in there but he basically says why was a picture of you as Pam in the documents uh, that that we have because uh, he's then, we go ahead and we'll say, and the dude starts quoting uh, Pam's love letter verbatim. Yeah. So he so obviously knows, knows everything something. about it. So this, he, he, he tells her and straight up, like, uh, if you don't tell me what's going on, I'm going to shoot you in the head. You're, uh, you're just, just going to happen yeah, right now. I'm going just, to kill you. Yeah. Since she, he also tells her, like, he basically says, I'm a good guy. I'm working against Hitler. I'm working for these people, but again, Gene doesn't know if he's just telling her to get this information or if he's um, telling her the truth. But I was surprised, you know this this again. This could have been more suspenseful. Again, it was a, a scene that could have been a lot more powerful than it was, but it was weak. I was I was like, you know, hoping that it would be get closer to her having to decide her country, or her life, you know. But it just it 
they cut so many times and they they intersperse this with Leggett running rushing into a room to talk to Chumley and Montague about a big break, you know, that, that happened. Uh, where the Nazis are moving troops from Sicily to Greece, that they got this information. And uh, instead of spending that time there with Gene, and I don't, it's just every time there was suspense, it was like they cut away from it and it ended. Uh, that scene could have been so much more. But again, uh, this guy goes and says that to her, and she basically, you know, gives him the information. But she does tell him that the documents are legitimate. Yeah. He- she does hold a hold on to that lock, say that they're real. So again, this is goes back to me saying that Von Roan, or however you pronounce his name, in my opinion, is the key to this whole thing because apparently this guy that threatened Gene was working directly under Von Roan, and he was sent by Von Roan to get this information and find out if it's true or not, so he could go back and again and go behind Hitler, Hitler if it was because he if it was true or not. Yeah, because Hit- they said earlier that this guy is Hitler's favorite advisor. Hitler does not do anything without this without guy. Say so. Yeah, so without this guy's blessing. So um, it's it's obvious that this guy that threatened Gene went back to Von Rohn, told Von Rohn, and, and they went ahead and uh, went behind Hitler's back and told Hitler that he needed to move the troops to protect Greece. So again, if it wasn't for Von Rohn, this entire thing would have collapsed. Would have been a whenever bust. they found that picture of Gene. But uh, the so the scene after this, well, again, like I said, it was it, it cuts back and forth, and we find out that they they've intercepted some information saying that they're going to move the troops. So they think everything's been a success. Then they get this information from Gene that she had to spill the beans on everything and told this guy what was going on. And they're not sure if that's true or not, if the, if they're just getting fed bad information now, saying that they're moving troops. But uh, again, it's just like, what, who's who's to believe what? And everything is just kind of up in the air. And then more of the uh, Montague and Chumley subplot that shouldn't even exist with them. Yeah. They basically get into a fight outside the room about, uh, about uh, Montague's brother being a spy. And... Uh, Again, it's just about like five minutes of wasted time that could have been spent on this other stuff that's so important that they basically just glossing over. Yeah. Uh, but but um, they they got they got the, all that information from Jean. Jean's safe. She's fine. She went back to them and told them everything. And now they have to go back to uh, Godfrey with this information. Let Godfrey know that Jean uh, was compromised. But during all of this, uh, it reminds me of a quote that uh, Churchill says at the start of the movie. He's like, the thing with spycraft is it takes a certain type of thinker to go down this, the what do you call it, this corkscrew mindset of spies. Uh, bef- and before too long, you're charging, you're, you're charging straight ahead and you don't realize that you're charging right into your own ass. Yeah. And he's like, it's, and that's what this feels like because there's just a back and forth. Do we trust? Do we not? The espionage is like, and it's like I'm I'm dumb, but I don't think I'm that dumb. But this whole back and forth, he said, she said, it's it's not like I don't mind a, a good spy thriller. Some of them are pretty, you know, pretty decent and smart thinking movies and when they're clever. And this was clever. Like we this is a a real thing that happened. 
but like you said the the love triangle the spying on it, it was just like it wasn't needed and it gave me a headache because mm-hmm. it was just like i don't need this but I, I i was wasting brain power thinking that it was going to be important but it's not yeah and then for uh, to further along uh human invites gene to live in his house with him <laughs> to and that makes Chumley incredibly furious. He's like, you're a married man. Why are you having this young, beautiful woman? Because they're worried about her safety. Yeah, and he's like, I'm worried about her safety, dude. She was attacked in her home. He's like, you're trying to get with her. I'm married, dude. I'm I'm cool. And then, like, there's this huge argument between them. And then, like, the next scene is, like, uh, Churchill, like I said, is cutting back and forth, cutting back and forth, and Churchill gives the go-ahead. And they've launched troops. And we're now back at the point, almost to the point where the, where the movie began with the frame story. Mm-hmm. And Chumley and uh, Montague Hewan are professional enough to set that bull, that basically that bullshit aside. And they're back to being friendly again. And while all this is going on, there's a just kind of like how friendly they actually are towards one another. As the stress is getting to Chumley, and he's like, Oh, Ewan or Montague, I may vomit. And Ewan looks at him and goes, I may vomit with you. Yeah. <laughs> and like I, I like that. I I like when they were friends. The the bullshit spying I didn't care for, but they were generally being friendly towards one another was fun to watch on seeing their friendship was. Exactly. I mean that's that's the kind of stuff that there just could have been more moments between them and Friction can come in other ways. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't have, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, and it's, that's, it seemed like that's what this writer was trying to do was put something in there to cause friction because those moments are always good whenever two people go at each other and then they make up and they become friends. Again, those moments are always fun and powerful in movies, but it's like they just went about it the wrong way to cause friction. But yeah, so basically, Jean, uh, at this point, we find out that she, accepted another position and she's leaving and this obviously hurts montague because he he's already told her he has feelings for her and he pretty much tells her again now that he's like i i lied to you earlier i i have i have feelings for you and she's like i know but it's not fair to us to your wife and so she and she's like or me and so she ends up leaving and it's you know it's sad for him and everything, but it you know it's it's the right thing to do. She had because she yeah. has no life with him, and it's all pointless again, pointless because the whole Pam and it's it's important the Pam and Major William, but them getting that close over a fake love letter, it was just seemed forced and heavy handed. It was forced, exactly right, the exact word. And throughout this whole movie, apparently Montague's been trying to write a letter to his wife and he kept stopping. And I here he finally writes her a letter. He finishes it. And then and, uh, we find out the mission was successful. Well, we get a July, we get another title card, July 10th, 1943. Yeah. It's like that, it's like that night or that morning. I think it's that night. And we find out that it was successful. Yeah, and like you Limited said, it's... casualties. We uh, we were successful, and then there's a follow up one from Churchill saying 
that um was it mincemeat swallowed hook rod and sinker hook rod and sinker that's the quote and everyone's clapping woo we you know successful hugging and you know it mission all their six months of work was successful and it didn't blow up in their face and kill ten thousand men mm-hmm. and then everyone just kind of shakes hands and goes their own separate ways and the movie ends with uh Hewan and and Charles just kind of like yeah Gene left yeah makes me sad but uh gotta do what we gotta do we gonna do and they're like what are you gonna do now he's like go back to work he's like oh yeah all my spying on you and Ivor uh Godfrey got my brother home for me and my mother oh that's nice you, your brother dessert, you know, that, that should be good for your mother. Yeah. Where are you going? He's like, oh, I'm going to go to America with my family and be done with all this. It's just kind of like, they don't know what to do because they can't, at this point in time, they can't tell anybody because the war's not over with yet, but they've they've done what they could do. I mean, there's not really anything else they can do. Now now it's time for the real war to to keep to continue while the hidden war takes a step back right and goes other directions so one thing i did like throughout this whole thing was like the whole writers you know all all these different people being writers and um you know and montague ended up being a writer even and like he wasn't even one of the writers during during the movie but the scene where they're that the starts off the movie and the scene where it picks up at the end where they're all in that that basement, the headquarters waiting for the news on whether it was a success or not. It's just quiet. They're all tense. They're all just sitting there waiting. And it's like, click, 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 click. Oh, yeah. Flemings, Flemings over there writing. Just writing the whole time. They're all stressing. Yeah, Montague. George, what are you writing over there? Yeah, for God's sake, what are you writing over there, Fleming? He says a spy story. A spy story. He keeps on smoking. Uh, again, that that dude, I think, is the actress Johnny Flynn. He he was he was great as Fleming. Oh yeah. Let's see here, I don't really have anything else. We can go ahead and do you want to do ratings? Or do you have anything you want to add first? Well, I will say that they do. They show some. Uh, things oh yeah, in yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That's the important the, thing. That yeah, you yeah go. Sorry, credits. I forgot about that. Um, they they say something. Uh, one of them is uh, it's like an epilogue for real events. Yeah, it says um, Operation Mincemeat saved tens of thousands of lives. It's now celebrated as the most spectacular single episode in the history of Deception. Invasion of Sicily was a triumph. It was a definitive moment in the war against Hitler and a crucial step towards Allied victory. Uh, it tells us that Montague and his wife were united. One thing that was cool. Um. They show uh, Dearborn, Dearborn's character after the battle. He walks up, and we see that he survived it. And then we see that, um, in also in this like little epilogue that you said, it talks about Jean's character in real life. She ended up marrying a uh, a soldier from that was in that battle. That, that was Dearborn on the first was in. boat that touched the beach. Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty cool. So it makes you wonder if she married the <laughs> character that. Dearborn or whatever, but um, and then one last thing with the that uh, Lindor Michaels character, 
they gave him the true like headstone he deserved. He's acknowledged yeah. as a go ahead if you want to say that. Like in, in the whole thing in 1943. Uh so in 1943, Major William Martin was buried with honors as Major William Martin. And for 40 years it stayed that way. And in 1997, the British government, I guess, like, because it's weird that uh, it went on. It was a secret for this long, considering that we spoke about it earlier, that Hugh and Montague wrote a book in 1953. So like 10 years later, mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Man Who Never Was. And it got turned into a fairly successful movie about this. Now, I don't know if he splurged and exaggerated details and didn't mention Glendor Michael. I, I don't know. But it wasn't until 1997 did they uh, uh, amend? I think they, they couldn't. Like, they couldn't reveal certain things for... after for, You had to wait for the statute of limitations or something, right. or, which is weird, but it's a government thing and they do weird things behind closed doors, like orgies and stuff. But they added to the gravestone that... um Glender Michael played Major William Martin, and they gave him they 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 officially announced that this was his real name and this is his real resting spot, and it brought him the honor to him and to all of his family and so on and so forth. That they you know it, it righted a wrong, it, not yeah. the best way, but it did it, it did right a wrong of hiding a man, and I thought yeah, that was very admirable, even though it was late, but it was still nice. Yeah, and they they show the actual tombstone in the movie. It's pretty cool. It says it ends William on Martin. the tombstone. I did think that was pretty cool. Yeah. Born uh, 29th March 1907, died 24th April 1943. Beloved son of John Glendor Martin and the late Antonio Martin of Cardiff, Wales. And then it has something in uh, Latin and it says, uh, rest in peace, Glendor Michael served as Major William Martin, RM. Mm-hmm. Royal Marines. RM. Yeah. Pretty cool. That that was uh, one of the cooler things for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, uh so do you want me uh, I'll go first and then you right? Yeah. If we're doing yeah, a little bit differently go. since we have a surprise at the end. A surprise we talked about it. We before. talked about it, but yeah. But uh I'll go ahead and do my rating first. Everything I said about the movie, it didn't need to be two uh, over two hours. It definitely could have been trended up. They could have lost uh, parts I mean cool the love triangle I guess it was supposed to add character and human element to keep you hooked but I think the story itself was good enough without having to have a pointless love triangle and then a hate you know a, a wedge between two of the main characters for them to end up you know it, I guess if they were friendly the whole time it wouldn't have been them coming together then wouldn't have been as cool and fun but I think they bumped, they bashed heads enough throughout the movie about ideas that I think it would have been okay if we didn't have the love triangle. And like you said, the the movie takes really long to get started, and the parts that are really important are rushed to an almost comical effect. Now, admittedly, I laughed, I enjoyed them. If I turn my brain off and just watch it as a movie, it's it's fine. Now I enjoyed it more on my second watch than I did my first watch. Cause I felt some of the acting felt a little forced, some of the, the line deliveries. Uh, but then when I watched it the second time, I caught subtle nuances in the acting and stuff. And so I did like it more on a second watch. 
I'll say that much, but they do waste a lot of time with a lot of things that they didn't need to, especially considering how good the story actually already is. They didn't need the the flourish to, with all this extra nonsense. See, with that being said, I'm going to award this three dirty deeds for your country out of five. Good old David Ainsworth. <laughs> he did do some dirty deeds. Yeah, three dirty deeds out of five. One thing before I get into my rating, mm-hmm. the music was by a man named Thomas Newman. He has 15 Academy Award nominations and he's never won. Yeah. He's tied with a guy named Alex North for the most nominations without a win. This guy uh, is amazing. Pedigree. Uh, His dad was a composer. uh, But this guy did the score for Shawshank Redemption. uh, Basically all the um, Frank Darabont stuff. Green Mile. Uh, He did some... uh, Back in at the start of his career, he did a lot of cool little movies that I loved as a kid. Revenge of the Nerds, Real Genius, Lost Boys. He does like all the same Mindy's like James Bond movies. And uh, he did American Beauty, The Player, Road to Perdition. He did Finding Nemo. He did the score, the theme for Six Feet Under. Uh, but this guy and is just that's a great. lot. That's really good music. Dude, he's he, yeah, he's he's amazing. And when we when we made Blind, um, our temp score before we had our score finished, we had the Shawshank Redemption score. So I've heard that score. I mean, first of all, I love the movie; it's my favorite movie of all time. But then we use that score as the temp score, so I just know that score backwards and frontwards. So, and I don't I don't think I really ever even thought about it being Thomas Newman to be honest, and like to see that he did the music for this. And whenever you go back and watch it the second, third time, you do kind of notice the music a little bit more, but um, he did a good job. So I just want to give Thomas Newman some props real fast. Yeah, because I, I didn't um, even think about music. I forgot to do any, because I get music's important. Like if you, you you said before, go back and watch any movie without the music and see if it's still the same movie. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, I nothing really stood out. No sound cues, no audio cues, no good needle. Like I didn't just, it. It didn't really yeah. affect me. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of the stuff I want to say, it's uh, I'm going to be just kind of repeating myself and echoing what you said. Extremely subpar script. I thought you, the directing, the acting, everything else was solid, not great by any means. But the just the script was just so subpar, in my opinion. Love Triangle, we said a thousand times, just absolute waste of time. That time could have been made. Uh, if you take taken that time either off of the movie or applied it to that last quarter, that stuff could have been way more suspenseful and um, made a lot more sense rather than um, all those dirty deeds being rushed. And we would have gotten a little bit more feel for why he was doing those things. And but again, instead of that, it was just like two lines of dialogue and we were supposed to be drawn into that. Uh, and it just didn't have any effect on me that way. Just the, uh, too much focus again, just on the not important stuff and not enough on what was important. You, the story was just so unique, but it was terrible storytelling. That's the biggest shame of everything. I'd like to read this, the novel uh, and Montague's novel for that uh, to that point. I wonder how much better those are if they those have more suspense in them or how those those run. But um, it's almost like she just took the suspense away 
and and tried to plug other things in that were just so so much a waste of time. Just I mean, just was like, ah, why? And it was just over and over. It was the same scene over and over with them. But um, if you wanted to create a love triangle, I mean, they could have done it with a Chumley and Dearborn. You know what I'm saying? Or it's like the whole Montague thing was just stupid, especially if he goes back to his wife and family at the end. It's just, I don't know. It just it made me so mad. It just it brought the rating for this, my opinion, for this way down from where it could have been. Again, it's just it, it, I'm not against any kind of love triangles or any kind of love story. Fine, add it, but let make it have it make sense. But in the end, I'm just uh, going to give this, what do you think? I'm not going to three. I'm saying two War of Shadows out of five. Two what shadows? War, war of Shadows. Like they say that the, the, the war is like one in the shadows. They say oh, that in the yeah, movie. Yeah. War of Shadows. But yeah, I was just, I, I can't give it three. It's just like the writing was just so terrible. But story again so unique could have been something special but i thought it was okay it's something i would never i was maybe somewhere in the two probably it's like it was like two is for me the two is i watched i watched it once i didn't hate it i want to watch it again that's a two for me kind of i I watched it we mentioned their rating what our ratings go a bunch of times for everybody's just kind of a little different but me i think well i one is i hated and i'll never you know we're like Zero is I turned it off and didn't finish it. Zero is like, which we haven't had one of those yet. We've had some stuff like this sucks, but like we have we've had a couple of ones. Zero is like literally, I don't know if we ever come across a movie. I mean, you think eventually we'd stumble into one one of y'all is just like I can't. I think I, both of y'all would probably force ourselves through for the podcast. Well, I'll say right now, fight me, internet. Uh Skinamarink is a zero. I couldn't finish that garbage. <laughs> Bring it on. Fight me. <laughs> It's garbage, but yeah, like I'd force myself, especially for the podcast, like I'd force myself to watch a movie. But sometimes watching it a second time can be a drag. But I, I, I did enjoy watching this a second time through, kind of like turn my brain off because I knew what was going on, I knew the characters, and I was able to easy, more easily absorb the information. I almost rated, I, I almost rated it a four. Really, I, um, honestly, but I was like, it's, it's not, it's not that good. It's and I and the fact that I've already read some of the actors were better than the better than better than the writing. Yeah. And the other reason I gave it a three is because I've actually already recommended this movie to somebody, somebody who I know actually really enjoys World War Two movies and stuff like that. And so I recommended it to them. So it'll give a three because I've already recommended it to somebody. Yeah. Uh, Any more thoughts on it? No, I mean, I feel bad giving it a two because I like all the actors so much. I like John Madden. I just, I mean, it was just, I got bored. No, no yes. joke. I mean, I was bored. The back and forth, the, like, it wasn't, it wasn't even like it was a whodunit, but just the espionage, like, like Churchill said earlier, the, the corkscrew thinking and the back and forth and the pointless crap about Ivor, uh, Ivor might be a communist. And they're like, Russia's an ally right now. Shut the hell up and focus on the real war. Like, mm-hmm. it was just a lot of, like I'm sure people thought like that. They were so focused on other crap, but like, why would you ever weigh one man against ten thousand? Yeah, that one man dies every time. Man, woman, child, unless it's a dog. I like dogs. I like people. I'll kill ten thousand people to save one dog, but that's also because I'm horrible. 
<laughs> but still, closing thoughts, Drew. No, I don't know. I mean, I, well, if y'all are done, I'll go say, are y'all, y'all done? I th- you're done, right, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're at the point where we're going to pick a movie now. Uh, the idea was with the past two times we had at ep- 10 episodes, we've had a, a, a listener write in something or write somewhere to me like Reddit. I think once was on Reddit, once was on Facebook. So if you got a, a movie suggestion, just contact the podcast in some way and you'll get on here. We didn't have anybody for, for this particular time. So uh, we had talked, I don't want to talk about it on podcast or off podcast, but just doing a, what I think Steve called producer pick too much pressure for me so i just put it uh i have a spin the wheel app on my phone i've had a bunch of movies that i've suggested to blake that he's uh we'll say turned down repeatedly uh for the the entire length of this podcast so i had them all on a list and i've thrown them all onto my app here i want to spin the spin the wheel you know right now on the podcast it's seven movies only one of which Neither me and Blake have seen uh, everything else we've all seen. I don't know if Steve's seen any of these actually, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't. We'll see. And when it comes to like why we picked the movie, you're going to know why next episode. I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up again. I guess why we picked the movie, but and why it, how why it made it to the wheel or whatever. Oh God, some of these have been on the wheel, been on been on my my list forever. Uh, all right, so here we go. I don't know if you're able to hear the noise or not when I spin the wheel. It's pretty pretty loud. I can't hear it. Can hear it? Okay, that's that's fine. It's probably annoying anyway. Hear that? The microphone, no. pack, microphone, pick up anything? Okay, good. All right, this is gonna be it's gonna be a weird one. So the wheel landed on, and me and Blake had talked about this. We've seen it before. It's been a long time. It's a very, very strange movie. So the wheel landed on a movie called The Final Cut, which that's Robin Williams stars Rob, Robin Williams, and uh, apparently. Mira Servino, uh, Jim Caviezel. It's a couple other people I'm seeing now that I'm looking it up. Uh, this is just a really strange uh, thing in uh, Robin, Robin Williams' career. It's a it calls it a sci-fi drama, sci- sci-fi drama thriller. Like there's no, it's not, a, it's not a comedy. I know he did a couple of serious movies throughout his career, but this is one that me and Blake watched back in like years ago. I always thought it was a really cool movie that nobody ever talked about. Now has it held up? Since last time me and Blake watched it, who knows? We'll find out <laughs> in a couple of weeks when, when everybody's rewatched it. Have you ever seen it before, Steve? I have seen it. Oh, damn it. Well, how how long is it? Do you remember it clearly or has it been a while? It actually hasn't been too long ago. It was on like HBO or something not too long ago. I watched it. Oh, God. The wheel fails. 2004, right? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah. We won't talk about it too much. I don't recognize the director Omar Nam. No, do we talk about it? On the yeah, episode? I was like, I say the director on the on, yeah. on this part too. Well, I mean, that's pretty much it. Uh, I wish I was hoping it was something. Wow, you hope it's it'd be a good one to talk about though. It was Robin Williams? I mean, we love, a... yeah. The problem with this, we're going to go to it right now. But like, we don't. Some people know. I mean, we're not going to go into the entirety of Robin Williams' career on the next episode. It would be. People can probably there's probably a whole podcast just about Robin Williams. Let's be honest oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to be do we're not going to be doing that. Uh, we're fans, needless to say, but that's pretty much where we'll stop for now. Anybody got any thoughts on any, anything else? Nope, all good. I'm I'm actually I'm looking forward to watching that movie again. Yeah, uh, we haven't watched it, man. Talking about it with you guys. Like, I like uh, sci-fi stuff. Yeah, been more than a decade, Blake, since we've seen it. 
Honestly, I think so. Probably more than a decade. Yeah, pretty cool. All right. I guess if y'all got nothing else, then I will wrap things up. Well, wrap things up like we normally do with uh, our thank yous and stuff like that. Uh, we want to thank Greg Bennett for writing and supplying us with the intro song to this podcast or theme song, whatever you want to call it. We really appreciate that and always, always say it sounds awesome. I'm going to thank Devious Pixel. Uh, he's uh, an artist. He does the art, the artwork for this podcast. He's been doing all the art for me and Blake's other podcasts for a very long time. Now we really like him. Uh, if you're interested, you can go go to the other podcast and look for an episode with uh, his his real name, Miladin Markovic. It's we we did we had we had a, a episode with an interview with episode. him. Who knows what number it was? But interview with him as because uh, he came on our podcast and talked about art and all kinds of cool stuff. It was a pretty cool episode. If you want to keep track of the podcast and stuff like that. I, I post occasionally. I'm pretty, I'm pretty bad. I'm, I'm old and I'm not good at social media. So, but you can, I do post there, try to post when we're recording or post when stuff comes out, but mainly it would be the place to contact us to, to suggest movies and to write in questions about the movies we've had movies. You're just curious about uh, hearing the, our, uh, our opinions about in general, even if it's like uh, in the zeitgeist right now, like we don't, we we tend to not cover, too many movies that are in the zeitgeist. I think Steve has picked a couple of brand new movies here and here and there across the across the way. But we, but if you want to hear the guy's thoughts on something you know, more recent, you can always write in there, and we'll we'll give the you know a few minutes on the podcast to talk about it because you know the podcast is not long enough as it is. We need to add some more content to it. For sure. So you can do that For on sure. the on the any of the social media, Facebook, Twitter, the email. Uh, action dot the movie podcast at gmail.com it's easy ways to get contact us we'll respond pretty much immediately or i will uh, last things here a little cross promotion i mentioned a minute ago on the podcast another podcast this this podcast kind of piggybacked off our our me and Blake's other podcasts lock stock and two smoky controllers that is a podcast that's mostly about video games there's talk of movies and music and other stuff on there too but it's almost exclusively about uh video games so if you want to hear blake talk some more or hear me talk some more i don't know why you would that's an option if, if you're in in the video games and then blake has uh self-published a short story on amazon kindle you can search for it uh by just searching they come this night It'll pop up right away if you're amazon kindle unlimited subscriber subscriber it's already in there you'll be able to just read it for free if not that's only a dollar and uh Blake's got to eat, so we really appreciate that. <laughs> and I said, uh, that is pretty much it. Oh, I, of course, links to all the people, places, things, and all that fun stuff. Blake's story, other podcasts, all the links to that stuff is going to be in the show notes in case you don't want to type out the name of the podcast or do any search. And I know people are lazy, so you can just click on the links. It'll take you straight to it. Give us a follow, write to us. We'd love to have. I didn't want to. I didn't really want to pick a movie. So people write to us. Pick, pick a movie. And we'll do it. We'll do more more stuff like that. And uh, of course, uh, thank Steve for you know doing the podcast with us. This is I say it every single time. This is about the only the only chance we get to talk to our buddy Steve here because everybody's got busy lives. And I hear about other podcasts. Some people it's the only time they ever talk to their friends is when they do podcasts with their friends. You make time for it, and this is our couple hours. We talk to Steve for the next. I mean, we text and stuff, but it's not like not as fun as sitting down and having a conversation with somebody. So we always love having him here for that kind of stuff. And that's all I got. So I'll, I'll let the guys close this thing out. 
right back at you. Uh, thank you guys for letting me be a part of this and invite me along. And again, yeah, like you said, it's always great to hang out and just talk movies. Don't really care how many people are listening. I'm getting a chance to talk to you guys. <laughs> so that's the best part. Uh, yeah. Yep. I will leave everybody by saying, make sure you see enough movies because all of life's riddles are answered in the movies. I want to wish everybody a good evening and good night.